Mark chapter 9 And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. To see the kingdom of God in its full power was the equivalent of seeing God in his full glory. And no man can see God and live. And also we know that as of yet, nobody has seen God the Father. But back in the Old Testament, when deity appeared to man, it was always in a person of the Lord Jesus Christ, known as a Christophany. Look at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Once again, the Lord conducts his affairs on a high mountain. And Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, his cousins, have joined him. The transfiguration was the greatest miracle bar one, being the crucifixion, of course, and his inner three, his closest apostles, are going to witness this. Three. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Elijah and Moses are quite possibly going to be the two witnesses in the great tribulation. Five. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. Recognition of the righteous dead is clearly found here. Moses and Elijah had been dead for centuries. Of course, Moses was put to death prematurely by the Lord back in Deuteronomy, going into Numbers, and Elijah, of course, was raptured. Also from Luke 16, the rich man in hell is able to see Father Abraham, and Father Abraham was able to see the rich man in hell. So there is a recognition, at least concerning the first death, hence why Peter is able to recognize Moses and Elijah. 6. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. Of course, this is quite natural, and yet the Lord's love, the Lord's understanding for Peter, James and John is remarkable. Look at 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Once again, God the Father is reaffirming his love and satisfaction in his one and only beloved Son. And Luke's Gospel tells us how they went into the cloud. They entered into the cloud, which is a picture of the Shehina glory, found very clearly back in the Old Testament, of course. 8. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. This is a picture, this is a glimpse, this is a snapshot of the literal, physical kingdom of God to be initiated at the end of the Great Tribulation. And also from Luke's accounts, I believe, it tells us how the Lord touched the apostles. They were probably on the floor, on their faces, recoiling, absolutely in terror, not knowing what was going to occur, and the Lord touches them. And if I know my Saviour, he would have said something along the lines of, Be not afraid. Rise up, let us be going. 9. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And that was probably in reference to the nine. What they saw, 
was for their eyes only. Ten, and they kept that same with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. He's told them time after time about his imminent death, and yet they still don't quite understand how he's going to be victorious through his death on the cross. Eleven, and they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first? No doubt this would be in reference to Elijah coming before the Messiah, in reference to Elijah being one of the two witnesses, in reference, of course, to him coming during the Great Tribulation, before the second coming of Christ. If you go back to the Old Testament, the prophets on multiple occasions wrote about the first coming and the second coming, and on many occasions just a comma or a semicolon would separate the two dispensations. So the scribes were right that Elijah was going to come first, before the Messiah, not realising that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, in reference to the first coming. 12. And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught? There you are, first coming. Elijah is going to come and restore all things in reference to the second coming. But what about the Son of Man, who has to come and suffer many things and be set at naught? The first coming, separated by the church age, and then Elijah literally will arrive, with Moses perhaps in the great tribulation. 13. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. As it is written of him, Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, like a long list of things that they were going to do, silence John the Baptist, silence the Lord Jesus Christ, silence the apostles, and those that were going to come after them. But it was written back in the Old Testament that such things were going to occur. And this is why it's so important to make sure that you are on the right side of history. The vast majority of people found in the Bible were on the wrong side of history. Only a few were on the right side of history. Only a few were ready for the coming Messiah. And only a few are going to be saved at the end of time. The road to hell is broad, it's wide, and many there be which are on that broad road to destruction. But the gate, the entrance, the path is narrow. Why? Because it consists of entering through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 1 down to 13, as always, cover a lot of material. The transfiguration, Peter, James and John saw a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ coming back of the second advent in his full glory. They saw him and yet did not die because he supernaturally protected them. On top of that, they saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, which underscores the reality, for me anyway, that Moses and Elijah are going to be the two witnesses found in the Great Tribulation. But he tells Peter, James and John not to tell anyone else what they had seen, which would have included the nine apostles, the seventy, and perhaps anybody else that may have inquired. This was just for their eyes only literally. 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. He's left the nine alone, with the seventy, no doubt, 
And yet, on his return, the scribes are questioning them. The scribes are interrogating them. And as always, the Lord Jesus Christ is very protective over his church. And it says in verse 15, And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him, meaning they greeted him. 16. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? What are you asking my apostles? Any questions for them? Come to me. 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, that they should cast him out, and they could not. Yet another unclean spirit has infested a child, his son, resulting in him being dumb. And this goes back to what I've said previously, how you, if you are a saved man or woman with children, you must protect your children. You must pray over your children. You must read the Bible to your children. You must do whatever is necessary to protect your children. Because your children are the most vulnerable when it comes to attacks via the devil. And yet the tragedy here is that his apostles, the nine, were unable to help this poor man. Look at 19. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. He's saying the days are going to come when I will go back to glory and then it's going to fall to my 12 apostles minus Judas to take care of your needs. But he calls them a faithless generation, a sinful generation. And last time he said he wouldn't do any signs for such a generation. 20. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. The spirit saw the Lord, no doubt recoiled. And the spirit has torn him, perhaps ripping his clothes off like he did to the man back in the Gadareans. And he's now fallen on the ground, wallowing and foaming, which is what Muhammad did. Muhammad foamed at the mouth like a mad dog. This is a true picture of demon possession. 21. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, Protect your children one more time. Pray over your children. Read the word of God to your children. Fast for your children. 22. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I love that. Desperation, humility, sincerity. If you can do anything, have compassion on us, my son and I, and help us. 23. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Yes, if it's God's will. Not all things without exception, all things without distinction, if it's the Lord's will. And perhaps 23 should be read in conjunction with 19, how this man perhaps lacked belief, faith, in the one true God of the Bible to heal, his son of demon possession. 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out, and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Crying out with tears. He even calls him Lord in reference to his deity. He says, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. When you're desperate and no one or nothing can help you, get on your knees and cry out to the Lord God of the Bible. And he'll reach out and grab you and keep you safe. 
25. When Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the last part of that is imperative. Enter no more into him. I'm going to cast you out and you stay out. Understand? That's the power of God. The apostles couldn't do it. The Pharisees couldn't help this poor man. The scribes couldn't help this poor man. But Jesus Christ could and did straight away. And also from 25, he sees the people running and he steps in straight away before they had arrived to enjoy this freak show, perhaps. 26, and the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. The spirit cried, probably with a loud voice, which is one of the signs of devil possession, and rent him sore. Perhaps he tried to kill him before he finally was exorcised from this child, but he came out. The spirits are in submission to deity. And they thought he was dead, but he'd probably just collapsed. 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. He probably collapsed through exhaustion. This man may have been spiritually weak, no doubt. He would have been perhaps anemic through a lack of the right foods. This spirit had been with him since he was a child. But just one word from the Lord resulted in this unclean spirit coming out of this young man. 28. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Different devils, at least during the time of the Lord and his apostles, needed to be exercised in different ways. And this kind of spirit would only come out through prayer and fasting, which perhaps underscores the reality that the nine apostles were carnal. Hence, while they didn't pray enough or fast enough, in anticipation of driving the spirit out of this young man. And I'll say this also one more time, that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing, but the Jewish apostolic sign gifts are exclusively linked to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. You find it also in the book of Acts, and Paul also had the Jewish apostolic sign gifts. But for today, like I say, we live by faith. We can pray for someone, of course, who is afflicted. We can intercede for that person who is afflicted to be set free and saved. But casting out devils per se for this generation, for this dispensation, I consider to be highly problematic. 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. Why? Because he wants to spend time with his apostles explaining his soon-to-be death on the cross. 31. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise a third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. It's almost a paradox. He's explained to them time after time how he's come to die for the sins of the world, and yet, time after time, they cannot or will not receive it. Why? Probably because they're still carnal. Look at 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that he disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. This could be a throwback to the transfiguration. Peter, James and John were given a glimpse of the second coming. And also we know from Matthew 20 how James and John 
wanted to sit at the left hand and right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. So they are jockeying for positions here when they should be focusing on the Lord's soon-to-be death. 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. Out goes the Pope of Rome, out goes the Archbishop of Canterbury. There's no top dog in the Lord's Church. There's no overall leader in the Lord's Church. And this house from 33 is quite possibly Peter's house. And I said last time that I wasn't sure this house was large enough to accommodate the twelve, along with Peter's wife and mother, and others perhaps being his children. But it does appear that they have now gone back into Peter's house, and the twelve have joined them. Bless read on. 36. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. This child was quite possibly Peter's child. And he says, if you receive me, you receive my father. And of course, if you reject me, you reject my father also. Children are very susceptible to the things of the Lord. Children are very open and interested to the things of the Lord. Unfortunately, as you get older, it gets much harder to be saved. And I heard a statistic the other day that if a person hasn't been born again by the age of 13 years of age, there is a 90% chance they will never be saved. That's tragic. Unless your children get saved by the age of 13, there is a 90% chance they will never be saved. 38. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. This is a mystery. Who could this man be that was casting out devils in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not only is the Lord going to preach against sectarianism, but on top of that, this underscores how the Lord has people that love him, that serve him, that we don't know anything about. The body of Christ is vast. And this also underscores the erroneous teaching that only one church has the complete truth when it comes to the things of God. If you're born again, you're in the body of Christ. 39. But Jesus said... Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. And that's very true. A person can't do a miracle on one day in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then turn around on another day and deny him. And Paul speaks about those that preach Christ through contention, through envy. And he says, never mind that, I am simply happy and content that Christ is preached. 41. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So 38 going down to 41 deals exclusively with the sin of sectarianism, tribalism, denominationalism. And also from 38 down to 41, I'm still fascinated with the fact that the Lord had people that were serving him, and yet the apostles had no idea who these people even were. Peter, the so-called first pope of the church, according to the Church of Rome, had no idea who this person was. And John, a cousin who was greatly beloved by the Lord, 
also had no idea who this person was. In fact, John forbade him. John tried to silence him. John tried to control him. And the Lord said, don't do that. There is no man that can do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. 41 more time. For he that is not against us is on our part. You're either for me or against me. You're either with me or you're against me. And this also underscores and reinforces my previous point, how no one person, no one church, no one group has all of the truth. The truth is found in Jesus and the truth is found in the word of God. Look at verse 42, please. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he was cast into the sea. A little one probably in reference to verses 36 and 37, would be a child. If you cause a child to stumble or to be offended in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, if you cause a young person who believes on him or who has the potential to believe on him to be offended or to stumble, he says it's better for you that a millstone were hanged about your neck and you were drowned in the sea. He's saying it's better for you to be dead if you cause a child to stumble a child that believes in me. This is powerful stuff. Look at 43, please. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew chapter 5, he speaks about lusting. And he says, if your hand causes you to lust, cut it off. And men and women, when they are aroused, use their hands to deal with their lust. And here the context is still in reference to children. 45. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Some people, the lowest of the low, and I gave you the analogy from Salome, back in chapter 6, I believe it was, have an unhealthy interest in children, and some people are very violent towards children and some people use their feet to silence their victims. 47. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. If your eyes cause you to lust, if your hands cause you to act on your lust, if your feet cause you to wound or even kill a child. Remove your eyes, remove your hands, remove your feet. Why? For it is better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now I know this is metaphorical language. The Lord Jesus Christ is not literally telling people to pluck their eyes out or to cut their hands off or to cut their feet off. Clearly not. But what he's saying is if your sin is stopping you from coming to him, if you are lusting with your eyes, with your hands, or if you are a serial sex offender, if you are a predator, if you are using your feet, or if you want to use your feet to attack someone, to force someone to submit to your wicked way, he's saying, deal with it. Because if you don't, you will go into a lake of fire where the worm dies not. Meaning when you die, you become a worm at the second death. 49. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Your soul is going to be sacrificed in hell. 
You become a worm at the second death if you die without Christ. If your sin, if your lust, if your murdering behaviour or thoughts causes you to not be born again, you will die as an unsaved sinner and go into the lake of fire where your soul takes on the nature of a worm, where the fire is not quenched. 50. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace one with another. Repent. Forsake everything and anything that stops you from coming to the Saviour. Deal with your sin. Deal with anything that hinders you from being born again. And look out. Verses 42 down to 50 speak about everlasting hell. Your soul will be tortured forever. Your soul will be sacrificed with fire and salt in hell. And if your hand is causing you to stumble, deal with it. If your eyes are causing you to stumble, deal with it. If your foot is causing you to stumble, deal with it. Whatever it takes, deal with it, but come to him on his terms. Throw yourself at the mercy of the feet of the Son of God. Don't cut your hands off, don't pluck your eyes out, don't cut your feet off. That won't save you. You must be born again. Deal with your sin to the uttermost. So chapter 9 started with the transfiguration which only Peter, James and John witnessed. He says to them, keep this to yourselves until I've been resurrected. But due to arguing, due to the apostles jockeying for positions in the kingdom of God, he takes a child up into his arms and he says, unless you receive me as this child has done, you won't be saved. In other words, unless you humble yourself, you won't be saved. And due to the impotence from his nine apostles that were unable to heal this young man, of devil possession, the Lord rebukes the unbelieving father, perhaps, and also the nine, and he says this kind of demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. And 38 to 41 he deals with sectarianism, and 42 down to 50 he deals with sin on a grand scale, hellfire forever. Mark chapter 10, And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was once, he taught them again. If you came to him on his terms, he would receive you to the uttermost. And 2,000 years later, if you come to him on his terms, he will receive you unto himself to the uttermost. Verse 2. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? That term, tempting him, underscores the ongoing sinister nature concerning the Pharisees. They tried to lay traps for him. They hated him without a cause. And the next 12 verses are going to deal with marriage and divorce. From chapter 9, I showed you the solemn warning of the consequences of unrepentant sin, lust, murder, and coveting. All these things come from within and defile a man. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what you think and it's what you do. And here, chapter 10, the switch is now changed to marriage and divorce. Verse 3. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? Now he goes to Moses because Moses was the great patriarch. And I believe the Jewish leaders, the apostate Israelites, worshipped Moses, like the Catholics, worship Mary and the Mass. 
and he says, what did Moses command you? He doesn't even question that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And I'll say this, that if the Lord Jesus Christ didn't know who wrote the Old Testament, nobody knows who wrote the Old Testament. Look at verse 4. And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. See, again, he doesn't question that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ was a true biblicist. And I have to say this because there are so many mischief makers out there today that question the authenticity of the Bible. There are professing Christians who give the Bible lip service. But Jesus Christ said that the scripture cannot be broken. And he told us from Revelation that if you changed or added a word to the scripture, you risked losing your millennial inheritance. That's how serious it is when it comes to the word of God. And he goes on to say how Moses wrote what he wrote for the hardness of their heart. That's a very damning indictment. Because the Pharisees were marrying and divorcing, far too often Moses capitulated to their pressure. And he wrote down in Deuteronomy 24 what the grounds for divorce would be. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. There's no evolution here. There's creation. And again, if Jesus Christ doesn't know how he came to be on this earth, then nobody knows how he came to be on this earth. 7. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. One man and one woman, monogamy, never polygamy look at verse 9 what therefore god hath joined together let not man put asunder most marriages break down due to a third party coming on the scene and he's making it very clear that what god has joined together through holy matrimony don't let someone else come along and break it up and yet today there are christians all over the world that have been divorced and remarried on more than one occasion And yet 50 years ago or 60 years ago, divorce and remarriage was almost unheard of in all areas of Christendom. And yet today it's endemic. And the people who suffer the most are the children, of course. Somebody once told me that divorce was the equivalent to child abuse. And this person who told me that had been married, had two children with his wife, But he went to jail for a crime that he committed. And during his time in jail, his wife divorced him and his children suffered terribly. But he got saved whilst he was in jail. But his children were torn to pieces due to the collapse of his marriage. And I've listened to far too many preachers over the years that have been married and divorced. Married and divorced. And they take it with a pinch of salt. To them it's no big deal. But, of course, it breaks the Lord's heart. It destroys the children. And on top of that, unless you have grounds for divorce and remarriage, you fall into the sin of adultery. Never mind lust from Mark chapter 9. Never mind lust from Matthew chapter 5. Adultery, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is also a grievous sin, which can result in a saved man or woman losing their place in the millennial inheritance. Hence why he says one more time from verse 9. What therefore God hath joined together, 
Let not man put asunder. Look at verse 10, please. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. No doubt they were confused and perhaps convicted by this teaching. Perhaps some of his apostles had been married and divorced themselves. And the grounds for divorce and remarriage, of course, would be death, desertion or sexual infidelity. But apart from those three areas, if you have divorced and remarried, excluding those three areas, the Lord God does not recognise your second or your third or your fourth marriage. You are now a serial adulterer. 11. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. In Islam, it's very difficult for a woman to divorce. And yet here the Lord says in 11, whether a man does it or a woman does it in 12, it makes no difference. Both have committed adultery. And back in the Old Testament, adultery resulted in capital punishment. That's how serious the Lord takes this whole subject of marriage and divorce. In his mind, marriage is for life. The ultimate plan is one man, one woman, forever. And even if that person is deserted, or even if that person falls into the sin of sexual infidelity, forgiveness is always the number one option. Divorce should always be the worst case scenario. And one final footnote, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that if person A and person B had been married and divorced pre their salvation, and perhaps their marriage and divorce wasn't biblical, and yet person A and person B are now born again. Paul says, Brethren, let every man, wherein he is called, therein abide with him. In other words, come as you are. If you come to the Lord as a saved divorcee who's remarried, stay as you are. All of your past, present and future sins have been washed away by the precious blood of the Lamb. But if you came to the Lord as a married person and your marriage is now broken down and you are the guilty party, if you caused the marriage to break down and you are a saved person, you cannot remarry because you are the guilty party. But if you are the innocent party, you have grounds for remarriage. And also from verse 5, just because the children of Israel put pressure on Moses to grant divorce and remarriage doesn't negate the fact that Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He just simply dealt with their hardness of heart, and as a result of their refusal to live godly, he tolerated marriage and divorce. But the Lord makes it very clear how that was never God's plan in the beginning. Creation, one man, one woman, married for life. Let not man therefore put asunder. Look at 13. And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Children, pre the age of accountability, are not necessarily innocent, because everybody without exception is born with original sin, but children, pre the age of accountability, are given a special dispensation. And children that have died pre the age of accountability, are automatically granted access and entrance to heaven. It's only when they become of age and the law kicks in are they now accountable 
in the eyes of the Lord. And that's why he says, forbid them not, don't stop them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Heaven is going to be filled with children that died in infancy, and heaven is going to be filled with children that were aborted by their mothers and fathers. 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. That goes back to humility, humbling yourself. Don't analyse the kingdom of God as an intellectual would do. Just receive it as a child would do. 16. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. What a beautiful act. Somebody said he had no children, that he might adopt all children. That's wonderful. 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came on running, and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do, that I may have eternal life? This wealthy man runs to the Lord, and kneels down in the presence of the Lord. And he says, What shall I do, that I may have eternal life? Sometimes people think that you have to do something in order to receive everlasting life and of course everlasting life is a free gift and this man's first problem was that he addressed the lord as good master and of course jesus is good jesus was sinless and he's certainly our lord and master but the reason why the lord says the following in verse 18 was because his presupposition of what is good was incorrect 18 and jesus said unto him why callest thou me good there is none good but one, that is God. And that's the bottom line. Only God is good all of the time. And yet saying that, the Lord Jesus Christ is not negating his own goodness. In essence, what he's telling this young man is that no one is good, i.e. me, being God, of course. But look at 19. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honour thy father and mother. Just six commandments are listed from the Lord. And it's interesting that the Sabbath wasn't mentioned once. And no doubt these six commandments were listed by the Lord. Because this was probably where this young man was the weakest. Because if you lust, if you commit adultery in your heart, you dishonour your parents. And you steal the glory from the Lord. And on top of that, you've borne false witness Look at 20. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Really? I always question this piece of scripture. The law was given as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law convicts us. The law doesn't save us. He may not have committed these sins in an outward manner, but I believe he probably committed these sins in an inward manner. 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. If you were to sit down with an honest Calvinist, and speak to him or her about how the Lord only loves the elect, they would say, Yes, that's true, Jesus Christ only loves the elect and Jesus Christ has only died for the elect therefore he hates everyone else and yet show this piece of scripture to them and ask them to explain this to you because it says here that Jesus beheld him he observed him and he loved him 
and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. Why would the Lord love this individual if it wasn't possible for such a party to be saved? And some Calvinists will say, well, this is in reference to the Lord's human side, not his divine side. And they try and carve up the God-man. But can I say this? The God-man was not 50% man and 50% God. He was 100% God and 100% man. You can't carve up the God-man. And on top of that, I'll say this. There's nowhere in scripture where we are told that this wealthy man got saved. And no, I don't believe this man was Lazarus either. Look at 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. This man came to the Lord full of good intentions. He ran to the Lord. He kneeled down to the Lord. He called him good master and the Lord loved him and said to him, sell what you have and then take up the cross and come and follow me. That was his main problem. The love of money is the root of all evil. And also the commandments found in 19 couldn't save you. This man may have thought he'd kept those six commandments. But the Lord, as always, probed a little further into this man's heart. And he says one more time, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. That was hard. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. That doesn't save you to do what this man was told to do in verse 21. But the latter part demonstrates true repentance and come. Take up the cross and follow me. To follow him would clearly demonstrate that such a party had been regenerated. And 22, one more time, and he was sad at that saying, why? For he had great possessions and he went away grieved, tormented. 23, and Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And that was a problem. Those that love riches, those that have trusted in their riches, are never going to be able to be saved. Because money is a stumbling block. The love of money is idolatry. And money, if you're not careful, can become a barrier between God and man. 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? You see, in the minds of the Jews, wealth was a sign of blessing. The same is true of today when you listen to these prosperity word of faith preachers. God wants you healthy and wealthy. And these apostles weren't poor by any stretch of the imagination, and neither were they particularly rich. And yet some of them were shocked at what they were hearing coming from the mouth of the Lord. Wealth did not necessarily mean that God had blessed you. Most people that have wealth have achieved wealth by stealing, by cheating, by treading on people, by corrupting people. Just because somebody is wealthy doesn't mean the Lord has blessed such a party. Look at 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. This would be an extreme example and yet, it's so simplistic. 26. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? They would have known people that were wealthy. They would have known well-to-do people. And they're saying, if the wealthy can't be saved, 
Or if the wealthy can't be saved, who is going to be saved? Look at 27. And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. The new birth is possible if you come via God. If you come to the Lord via man, or if you come to the Lord via yourself, salvation therefore would be impossible. 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And that's true, they had done. And yet, John 21, post the resurrection, a group of apostles return to fishing. They still had their boats, they still had their businesses, and yet, Peter was quite right, we have left all and have followed thee. They had turned from their secular lives, they had turned from being self-employed to now living with the Lord for three and a half years. And the Lord sustained them for three and a half years. Supernaturally, of course, like Moses had done with the children of Israel back in the Old Testament. 29. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in his time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. And that's true. Many people lost their friends and family, mothers and fathers, brethren, and yet they received spiritual brethren, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers. And also from 29 he speaks about wife in the singular, not wife in the plural. The Lord God never condoned of polygamy. And that's why he says, For some of you have left a wife. Not wife's plural, but a wife singular. And children and lands, for my sake and the gospels. But don't worry, he says, you people are going to receive now, in this present time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands. On top of that, you're going to receive persecutions. Many of you are going to die for your faith in me. But in the world to come, eternal life. 31. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Equality in the kingdom of God is one point, one fact found in scripture, and yet those in the kingdom of God are going to have different levels of rewards and different levels of responsibility, which is based on how they lived after they were saved. But nevertheless, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve, and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. He's told them this on so many occasions, and yet, for reasons that we don't quite understand, they were never able to receive it. Yes, they loved him, and yes, they were prepared to die for him, and many would do, of course, but they couldn't receive this message from him. 
Time after time, he prophesied, he predicted his death, which underscores, again, his deity, of course. And also from 34, he says, they would spit upon him. And yet, we saw last time how the Lord spat in the eyes of a blind man in order to give him his sight. And yet, the people of Israel corporately spat in the face of the Lord. They thumbed their nose at him. They treated him with contempt. Look at 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. In Matthew chapter 20, their mother goes with them and asks the same question of the Lord. And their mother, I believe, was the Lord's aunt. 36. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptised with all, shall ye be baptised. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. You couldn't blame them for asking. These two brothers were cousins of the Lord, and they loved him and hoped that perhaps their family relations would grant them privileges in the Lord's kingdom. He says, no, it's not for you to receive it. It will be given to those to whom it has been prepared for. And I believe from John chapter 17 that the 11 apostles will all sit in the presence of the Lord as they witness and enjoy his glory. And Jesus Christ makes number 12 because Jesus Christ is called an apostle as well. 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. That's a picture almost of lordship salvation. Putting authority over the flock, lording your position over people, putting people back under the law. It's very similar language here. But look at verse 43. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servants of all. Out goes the papacy as well. There's no top dog in the church. We're all equal and we are all priests in the eyes of the Lord. 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In reference to those that are going to appropriate the atonement. He died for all of the sins of the world, but unless you have appropriated the atonement, you won't be saved. Therefore, this verse cannot be cited to justify limited atonement, no. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. He came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. But you have to personally appropriate the atonement in order to be saved. 
46, And they came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That's a messianic term, son of David. Jesus, have mercy on me. The common people heard him gladly, and this poor man, Bartimus, had no doubt been a beggar for a long period of time, and he hears a group of people approaching, and he inquires as to who this group of people are, and he soon discovers that it is Jesus, the son of David. And he has faith to be healed, he's desperate to be healed. 48. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. He's almost looking to the second coming of Christ. He's looking beyond the first coming of the Lord's ministry to the second coming of the Lord's ministry. The first coming, Jesus Christ came as a son of Joseph, the suffering saviour. But at the second coming, he comes as a son of David to rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. 49. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. That garment, no doubt, kept him warm. And the moment he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ has called him, he discards his garment in anticipation of a miracle, which demonstrates great faith on the part of Bartimus. 51. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Yet another amazing miracle. Your faith has made you whole. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And he follows the Lord Jesus Christ in the way. So 52 verses from Mark chapter 10. And as always we've covered much ground during today's study. And the first 12 verses dealt with marriage and divorce. And the Lord Jesus Christ affirmed how Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he says, what God has put together, don't allow any man or woman to separate, to put asunder. Because from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause, verse 7, shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, be joined to his wife. And they twain, both of these people, shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. Marriage should be forever. And yet Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of the hearts of the children of Israel. For the new covenant, marriage and divorce is permitted for the innocent party on the condition that either a death has occurred, they have been deserted, or they have become the victim of sexual infidelity. And they cannot forgive the wrong party, or the wrong party has gone off and remarried someone else, forcing a divorce on the innocent party. Therefore, the innocent party is allowed to remarry. 
but according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, only another Christian. The innocent party can remarry, the guilty party cannot remarry. And should the guilty party remarry, they become a serial adulterer. And like I said earlier on, adultery in the Old Testament meant death. In the New Covenant, it can result in a person losing his or her place in the millennial kingdom of God. And 13 down to 16, the Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear how heaven is going to be filled with children. Not because children are exempt from sin, they're not. But before they come of age, they are outside of the law. They are outside of the judgment of God. 17 down to 22, nobody is good but one. And if you want to be saved, deny yourself, follow me, carry a cross and be prepared to forsake everything once you have been born again. But if you love money, if you love your riches, that will always be a barrier between heaven and hell, between God and man. This life is temporary, the next life is eternal. And money per se is not a problem, riches per se is not a problem, but the love of money, the love of riches is the problem. And that's why it says in 22, at that saying, he was grieved because he had great possessions. And also from this piece of scripture, the Lord beholding him loved him. Why would he love a man who was not one of the elect? Ask this question to non-as Calvinist and you'll see how they struggle to exegete this piece of scripture. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, elect or non-elect, that whosoever believeth on him, no works involved, would not perish, go to hell when they die, but have present tense eternal life. So God does love the world, but his love, of course, is conditional on you believing on his Son. And 23 going down to 31, the apostles are shocked and horrified when it comes to the Lord condemning people that are wealthy, perhaps being unable to be saved. But he explains it to them. He says, with God, all things are possible, but with men, all things are impossible. And Peter also speaking, no doubt, on behalf of the twelve, says, but Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And he says, yes, you have. And many of you are going to receive children, lands, husbands, wives, etc., etc. In this life, in a spiritual sense, and some of them would have received literal wives and husbands as they went on with the Lord. Perhaps some of these people would have lost loved ones to martyrdom. And therefore they would have gone on to remarry perhaps. But on top of that, you're going to struggle with persecutions. But in the world to come, eternal life. 32 down to 34, he reaffirms his predicted death. He prophesies as to how he's going to die. And again, they couldn't receive it because they were still carnal for the most part. They were still unable to truly digest the enormity of his soon-to-be death. 35 down to 41, James and John, the Lord's blood cousins, tried to secure a place in his kingdom on his left hand and on his right hand. And he says, no, it's not for you. It has been given from my father to those that are going to receive it. And I believe that it's going to include all of the 11 with Jesus Christ making number 12 himself. And 42 down to 45, out goes the papacy, out goes lordship salvation, 
Out goes the clergy and laity. You're all the same. You're all going to serve one another. And finally, Bartimus, from 46 down to 52, is healed of physical blindness, which is no doubt perhaps done to demonstrate, once again, the Apostles' failure to perceive much of the Lord's spiritual talk, a metaphorical language as well. We saw it last time, how the Lord healed people right under the nose of all sorts of sicknesses to demonstrate his lordship over the world, over mankind. Hence why he's called the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David. And Bartimus, knowing that a miracle was soon to occur, casts his garments away, 50, and came to Jesus, and 52, he followed him in the way. So 52 verses for Mark chapter 10, and as always, much material has been covered today, but next up, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And when they were come nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat, loose him, and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And this goes back to chapter 9, where we discovered how the Lord had people that were following him, worshipping him, and serving him, and yet the apostles were oblivious as to who these people were for the most part. And here the Lord says, Go out, two of you, and find a colt tied, whereon never man sat, loose him, and bring him to me. And should anyone say to you, Why are you doing this? Just say the Lord has need of him. Lord, in reference to his deity. And straightway, immediately, he will send him hither. And this goes back to the overarching point of scripture, how the Lord is sovereign, and how he has people that are working for him, serving him, and following him, that the apostles, like I say, were totally unaware of. And this further underscores the sin of sectarianism and denominationalism. If you're born again, like I said last time, you are in the body of Christ. So don't be too quick to judge others that are outside of your system or those that are born again and are in no system. Five, and certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colts? And they said unto him, Even as Jesus had commanded, and I let them go. We'll never know who these people are and we'll never know the true meaning of this piece of scripture, apart from the fact that the Lord was trying to stamp out tribalism, religious snobbery, like I say. 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees, and stored them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The Lord Jesus Christ is receiving an escort. Some walked ahead, proclaiming his arrival. Some followed behind, 
proclaiming his arrival. Blessed is he, nine, that comes in the name of the Lord. To come in the name of the Lord meant you had the authority of the Lord. And ten, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. Messianic, no doubt, in reference to the Davidic kingdom. That cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Pointing to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And verses 9 and 10 are going to be fulfilled in the ultimate sense at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning quite clearly that what we are reading here is just a glimpse of the sort of reception he's going to receive at the end of the great tribulation when he comes back to rule and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Look at 11 please. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the evening tide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. That's a picture of contempt as far as the Lord was concerned. He wants to see fruit. He wants to see the people of Israel repentant. And he wants to see the Jews ready to receive him and his message. But, of course, through foreknowledge, he knew that the Jews, for the most part, would not believe on him until Pentecost. And we know from the book of Acts how in one day, 3,000 Jews believed on him. But for the most, during his time on the earth, yes, he would heal thousands of people. Yes, he would feed thousands of people. And yes, salvation would come to scores of people. But go back to Acts chapter 1. And how many people do you discover in the upper room? Only 120. So as you ponder that thought, look at verse 12. And on the morrow... When they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. This tree pitches Israel, and although the figs were not yet due to blossom, although this tree was not yet Technically in season, the Lord Jesus Christ decided that at this point of time, at this point in his ministry, he's only days away from going to the cross, that he was going to curse this tree. And this pictures the final days of the Jewish kingdom before it's given to the church. Now we know for here and now we are in the church age, and for those of us living in the church age, we are spiritual Jews. We are God's people, and only we are his people. The Jews may be religious, the Jews may worship on the Sabbath, the Jews may keep the law, or so they believe, but due to the fact that he has cursed this tree, due to the fact that we are leading up to the final days of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means in essence the end of the old covenant, and the soon to be initiation of the new covenant, we are the Lord's people and the Jews are outside of God's remit, because we are in the church age today. But during the great tribulation, known as Daniel's 70th week and Jacob's trouble, the Lord will turn to Israel once the church has been raptured and he will send 144,000 Jewish male evangelists, which are also virgins, to preach to the people of Israel and the world in general. And scores of people are going to be saved due to their preaching. So for here and now, the church has temporarily replaced Israel. But go back to Romans chapter 11, read it, and examine how the root is Jewish, and the root is holy, and the root sustains the church. The church doesn't sustain the root. The root is Jewish, 
Whereas the church is the body of Christ. The church is grafted in to the roots of Israel. So you can pray for the Jews. You should show them kindness and sincerity. But because this tree has been cursed, which I say one more time represents Israel in her barren state. We, the Gentiles, we, the church, those of us which have been born again, are now spiritual Israel. But just for now, just for the church age, during the great tribulation, as I say, the Lord is going to turn back and deal with repentant Israel. 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Why? Because the temple is holy. The temple was the house of the Lord, at least for that period of dispensation. But for now, we, the born-again Bible believer, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. From the book of Acts, the word of God makes it very clear how the Lord no longer dwells in temples made with hands, but in the hearts of regenerate sinners. In John chapter 4, the Lord told you how the time was coming when the Lord would be worshipped in truth and in spirit. Not in a temple anymore or in church buildings, but where two or three gather, he, the Lord, is there in the midst of such people. But these verses are underscoring the sinister nature and the greed of religious people using the temple to make merchandise. Hence why he goes in and he drives them all out. Which pictures, of course, a righteous anger. You can have a righteous anger, but if it's an unrighteous anger, it's a sinful anger. 17. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. All nations, plural, the house of prayer. And although this scripture is from Isaiah 56, found here, of course, in Mark chapter 11, when it says, My house shall be called of all nations, plural, the house of prayer. I think it has a greater futuristic application because the temple of the Lord was built for the Jews. Jehovah was only the Lord of the Jews. Jehovah was the God of the Israelites. If you were not a Jew, you were outside of the kingdom of the Lord. And yet I'll say this as a quick footnote, there will be a temple built in the great tribulation which the Antichrist will desecrate. But on top of that, we know during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ how the animal sacrifices will be re-implemented. So I think verse 17 is speaking prophetically anyway in reference to the millennial sacrifice and worship of the Lord. Nations plural, peoples plural, but for here and now, he is showing his righteous indignation at the way that these greedy Israelites, and no doubt others, are using the Lord's temple, the house of the Lord, to defile it, to make merchandise of the people. 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the people were astonished at his doctrine, they feared him, they had no reason to, not here and now, as the son of Joseph, the suffering saviour, but yes, as the son of David, at the second coming. We know from Psalm 110 how he will put people to death who oppose him. But they feared him, 
They envied him, they despised him, because all of the people were astonished at his doctrine. And this similar mentality is found today when it comes to the subject of church pinching. Stealing members from one church and then incorporating them into another church. Pastors go around trying to entice people into their church. And such church leaders are always fearful of losing their parishioners. But we are the church, those of us which are born again. You don't have to meet in a physical building to worship the Lord or break bread. If you are born again, you are in Christ Jesus. And I can remember listening to a sermon years ago when a well-known preacher said, Are you coming to church to meet God or to hear about God? And I would have said to him, had I been present at that moment, neither. You don't have to go to a church building to meet God or even hear about God. He lives within you if you are born again. And if you have a Bible, he will talk to you through his written word. But these pastors, like I say, that are always in fear of losing their parishioners, are in the same company as the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees found here in verse 18. Because they fear the loss of parishioners, which results in the loss of income, which results in these paid pastors having to get a job, which is quite right. 19. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Within 24 hours, the fig tree has withered away, and Peter, no doubt speaking on behalf of the twelve, points us out to the Lord by calling him Master, meaning Rabbi. The fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And this, as I say, will demonstrate the beginning of the end for the nation of Israel. 22. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. You've believed in me for three and a half years, and I've sustained you, I've looked after you for three and a half years, but I am days away from going to the cross, and after then you are going to be on your own. But I won't leave you comfortless, I will send the Holy Ghost, who will lead you into all truth. And the Muslims would have you believe that the comforter found in the word of God is Muhammad. Have you ever heard such a nonsense? Muhammad didn't arrive on the scene until 600 years after the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The comforter found in scripture is the Holy Ghost, the third member of the Godhead. Not Muhammad, some dubious, questionable character that we can't even be sure even lived. But that's the bogus claim that the Muslims make nevertheless. 23. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now you have to understand this very clearly. He's not speaking in a literal sense here. There's nowhere in scripture where the apostles prayed for a mountain to be moved, and it happened. What he's demonstrating here quite simply is to have true faith in the Lord. So when you pray, your prayers will be answered. But saying that, I must say this, your prayers, A, have to be sincere, B, have to be in line with the will of the Lord, and C, it may not come straight away.
24. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Not in reference to the prosperity message, not in reference to the name it and claim it brigade, and not in reference to health and wealth. Your prayer has to be the Lord's will, and saying that it may not come straight away. If you read the Bible very carefully, most of the greats waited years before the Lord answered their specific prayer. In fact, go back to the Gospel of Luke, and you find Zechariah and Elizabeth praying for a child, and the Lord made them wait over 25 years before he answered their prayer. So please keep these things in mind. 25. And when you stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. If you were to read verses 25 and 26 without any context, you would think that your salvation was dependent on you forgiving others in order for the Lord to forgive you. But that's not what we discover in the epistles. Here the Lord is speaking to the Jews under the law. In the New Covenant, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear how we have already been forgiven of our sins based on the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will say this, if I was to harmonise these verses with the epistles, that for those of us which are saved by our faith in the shed blood of Christ, if we don't forgive others, especially those that are born again, that have wronged us, that have done us harm, if we don't forgive the brethren, the Lord won't forgive us in reference to our fellowship with him, not in reference to withholding salvation from us. And a Christian who loses their fellowship with the Lord is a most miserable person indeed. So 25 and 26 must be carefully read and understood to be a in reference to the Jews under the law that have yet to be reconciled to the Father, meaning they haven't yet been regenerated, and secondly, in a spiritual sense, for those of us which are holding a grudge against a third party, until we forgive such a person, the Lord will not forgive us, our trespasses, our sins, our grudges, our iniquities against them, and therefore we lose our fellowship with the Lord. But First John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our faults, if we confess our iniquities, he, God, is just and faithful to forgive us of our sins, of our iniquities, of our failures, and to cleanse us from all of our sins through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 27. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And this deceptive question also gets asked today by those in organised religion when it comes to those of us which are born again but are outside of organised religion. Where do you get your authority from to street preach? Where do you get your authority from to baptise new believers? Where do you get your authority from to make recordings such as this? Look at 29. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He answered a question with a question. 30. 
the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. What a great question. The Jews had rejected John as they had rejected their prophets and kings and priests going right back to Israel's conception. 31. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John, that he was a prophet indeed. Typical men pleasers. And if you go to Galatians chapter 1, Paul made it very clear that he wasn't going to please men, but God. And he also told us from the epistle of the Romans, Let God be true, but every man a liar. 33. And they answered, and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. You won't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. And the same is true of today. We ask those in organised religion, what is your final authority? The scripture or tradition? Are you saved by your faith in the finished work of the Lord on the cross? Or are you saved by your faith and vain works? So verses 1 down to 11 from Mark 11 demonstrates how the Lord was quite happy and willing to be worshipped. He was quite happy and willing for the people to call him the Lord, the son of David, who came in the power, in the authority of the Lord God of the Bible. And people worshipped him and he said, that's fine. You call me Lord and Master from John 13 and so I am. 12 going down to 14 deals with the barren fig tree which pictures apostate, unrepentant, non-responsive Israel. And the Lord curses that tree, even though the fruit was not yet ready to blossom, but the Lord had spent three and a half years going up to Jerusalem, looking for fruit and finding nothing. 15, going down to 21, the Lord rebukes those that have defiled his house. It says, my house in 17 shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. And by calling it my house or his house, he is once again affirming his deity. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite from 18 hated him and they feared him. Which is still the same today for those in organised religion. They fear those of us which have left organised religion and are saving people and discipling people and supporting people on a grand scale. They were astonished at his doctrine, the people, not the religious elite, because the common people heard him gladly, and the religious elite, for the most part, were outside of the Lord's remit. They were under a perpetual curse, going back to the Old Testament. 22, going down to 26, the Lord wants the apostles to really dig in, to really believe, to really trust in the power of prayer, because he was going to leave them in a physical sense, but not in a spiritual sense. And the scripture promises, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You might leave him, you might depart from him, but from Luke 15, the good shepherd will come and find you and bring you back to him. And also from 25 and 26, forgiveness from the Father is conditional on you, if you are saved, forgiving a third party who may have wronged you. But 25 and 26, in the context this would be in reference to the Jews needing to forgive others in order for the Father to forgive them of their trespasses. Remember what I just said to you, please, how the Jews were under the old covenant, which is slightly different to the new covenant. And I'll say this also, that I believe that all people are saved the same way. 
Old Testament and New Testament, but the Old Testament did involve a level of external religious practice, meaning going up to the temple, sacrificing animals, and being a part of the Jewish community. For the New Covenant, where just two or three gather to meet and break bread in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is there present among us. And that also constitutes a church fellowship as well. But you don't need it, because the triune God lives within you if you are born again. And also finally, 25 and 26, when harmonising with the epistles would be in reference to one's fellowship with the Lord, not one's salvation from the Lord. 27 going down to 33, the religious elite, the so-called church fathers, as I've dubbed them, although they were Jews, of course, are sniping, are once again trying to undermine his authority and by doing so discredit him in the eyes of the common people, which still goes on today from those in organised religion. And they ask him a question and he turns around and asks them a question about John the Baptist. And they say quite rightly from 31, if we say from heaven, he will ask us, why then did you not believe him? And if we say we don't know, the people will stone us. The people will attack us because John was very popular among the common people in Israel. And the Lord says in 33 one more time, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. You won't answer my question. I shan't answer your question. And that's how it should be today if somebody tries to trip you up, if some religious individual, some self-righteous Pharisee tries to trip you up with a question. Just answer a question with a question and then move on to another party. But next up, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and did a place for the wine fat and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. Here the Lord once again has switched back to parables, but this parable is going to be understood by the Pharisees, which was done deliberately, of course, to A, outline his contempt for them, and B, to cause them to repent, to cause them some discomfort, to cause them to examine themselves. Because post the cross, some Pharisees and some priests Acts chapter 6 did believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2. And at a season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. It is one thing that we must always remember when it comes to reading the word of God. How for the most part, the minority understood the Lord and the majority for the most part misunderstood the Lord. In other words, people for the most part were not only against the Lord, they not only didn't believe on the Lord, but they were on the wrong side of history. And the same is true today. The vast majority of people living today are not only antichrist, they are not only at enmity with God through their wicked works and their unbelief, But they too are on the wrong side of history. 5. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Just go back to the Old Testament. Prophets were killed. Kings were disgraced. 
priests were ridiculed. Just read Hebrews chapter 11. And there you find the word of God telling you how the world was not worthy of the suffering saints. Those that were faithful. Those that endured until the end of their lives. 6. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. And on top of that, the word of God tells us how the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord's final messenger slash prophet to the world. Muhammad is not the final prophet from God. Jesus Christ was the final prophet sent from God. And you can't miss it from verse 6. His son, his well-beloved, was sent unto them, the Jews, last of all, hoping that they, the Jews, would revere his son. Holy and reverent is thy name. 7. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance shall be ours. And they actually thought they could do it. They actually thought they could kill the son of God, the son of man, the second member of the triune God, and take his inheritance for themselves. And that's a tragedy when it comes to mankind being not only on the wrong side of history, but not even knowing that they are on the wrong side of history. Those that are deceived don't know that they are deceived. It's an absolute tragedy. 8. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others, which he did in 70 AD. But the previous chapter, I showed you how the Lord has already cursed the fig tree, which represents unbelieving apostate Israel. 10. And have you not read this scripture? The stone, which the builders rejected, is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Our, in reference to the triune God. And Jesus Christ is the stone. He's the rock. He's our foundation. He's our everything. 12. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken a parable against them, and they left him and went their way. And he wanted them to know that such a parable was against them, but they hated him and wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because they feared the people. And Paul said back in Galatians how he wasn't sent to please men, but to please God. Let God be true, and every man a liar. 13. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And this premeditated conspiracy continues to spiral out of control. And now the Pharisees and the Herodians are joining forces to try and catch him in his words, to undermine him and to discredit him among the people of Israel. 14. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. And carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Talk about buttering him up. Talk about trying to give the impression of being his people. 15. Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. A penny being English money, and he knew their hypocrisy. He was omniscient, he was omnipresent, he was omnipotent. And these fools, these imbeciles, these morons thought they could come alongside him, flatter him, in order for him to fall into their trap. Pitiful, just pitiful. Look at 16. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. 
And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. They hated Caesar. The people hated Caesar. And the people no doubt hated the apostate religious Jews. And yet what a great answer. Give to God what is God, and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, God demands total worship. And you'll see that from verses 29 down to 31. And yet Caesar also is justified to receive your prayers, support, but above all taxes. Taxes to keep the states afloat. And they marvelled at him. They were shocked at his answer. And they were shocked and totally outsmarted by the Lord God of the Bible. 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Again, they go back to Moses, their beloved patriarch, a man who they practically worshipped, instead of worshipping God, like the Catholics do, with Mary in the Mass. And they thought perhaps they could trick him on this occasion, and use an account back in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses spoke about preserving the seed within the family of a dead Israelite. You see, back in the Old Testament, there was no welfare. In the New Testament, there was no welfare either. And it fell to the remaining family to raise up seed. In other words, if a person died and he had no children, his wife should marry her brother-in-law in order to have a child, in order to receive an inheritance. And this account is going to be embellished to make it almost laughable and to give the impression that the Lord would not be able to give a clear answer. But again, he was one step ahead of them. Look at 20. There were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and died and left no seed. And the second took her, and died. Neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. Now I personally question the legitimacy of this account. I think not only are they embellishing it, but they are highly exaggerating it. The thought of one woman marrying seven brethren, seven blood brothers, and dying without a child is almost ludicrous. In fact, for the woman to marry seven brethren in the first place seems farcical. But men say and do desperate things when they are desperate. 23. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife, and that term had her... It's a very carnal expression. People say, I had her, or she had him. And it's used in questionable circumstances by questionable characters, shall we say. It's almost slang. It's very crude. And yet the King James sets a standard, and the world follows. 24. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err? Because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. What a put down. You don't know the power of God. You don't know the Scriptures. In other words, shut your mouth. You don't know what you are speaking about. 25. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Sexless, of course. And these great Pharisees, these scholars, these experts of the law, totally misunderstood what happens during the resurrection from the dead. And he says in 25, one more time, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Sexless, and on top of that, male as well. 26. 
and as touching the dead that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. What another slap down? You fools, you have no idea what you are even saying. And he also says in 26, Have you not read what Moses wrote in the book of Moses, in the book of the law, going back to the Old Testament, in reference to Exodus, of course, and he never once questions that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he says how God spoke to him, Moses saying, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, 27, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And by this point in time, the Pharisees and the Herodians would have been incredulous. Who does this man think he is? This carpenter from Nazareth. He spoke the truth and his words penetrated the impenetrable hearts of the unbelieving Pharisees and Herodians. And no doubt people were present at this point in time that would have gone on to perhaps be saved later on. But he's doing this first of all to rebuke this group of hostile, unbelieving Jewish leaders. And on top of that, he's doing this to demonstrate once again to a small flock what they too are going to have to come up against once the Lord Jesus Christ returns to heaven. 28. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And that's why he did what he just did, because this scribe was listening in the background, and this scribe was probably convicted by what he heard, and as always the Lord was able to use what at first appeared a slightly negative and hostile interaction to glorify God, and to bring sinners unto him, repentant sinners unto him. Look at 29. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. But keep this in mind, he's speaking to a Jewish scribe, and this scribe has come from an apostate background. This scribe has come from a background which gave lip service to the Old Testament. The Jews should have loved the Lord God of Israel to perfection. Even though we know as redeemed sinners that for the most part we fail the Lord each and every day. He still expects perfection because he is God. God therefore cannot lower his standard. His standard remains at the highest possible level. 31. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. But go back to what I've just said, because it is impossible for those of us that are saved to truly love God all of the time, with all of our minds, hearts, soul and strength. And yet, he cannot lower his standard. So what does he do? He sends his only begotten Son to fulfill the standard for him. Substitutionary atonement, which is not in the context here. And I'll say this also, if you were to read John 21, there was an account where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Peter, and he says to Peter, do you love me more than these, in reference to the other apostles? And Peter says, yes, on three occasions. And what's interesting, if you look at that account from 
the Greek text, and I do this every so often because it's interesting, there's two Greek words there for love. One is an ultimate love, and the other is a slight lesser love. In other words, one is a love of the highest possible standing, and the other love is a slightly lesser love in reference to being fond of someone, or being as fond as you possibly could to a second party. And Jesus Christ said how he loved Peter to perfection, because he's God and he can do. And Peter said to the Lord, I can't love you to perfection, but I can love you to the highest possible standard when it comes to mankind. In other words, I am very fond of you, dear Lord, and I'll follow you to the ends of the earth, but I cannot love you to perfection because I'm a flawed creature. Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And you saw that very clearly back in the Gospel of Luke. But in John 21, the Lord seemed happy and content to receive Peter's inferior love for him, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for the church and his love for his Father were at the highest possible standard. And that's why substitutionary atonement is just marvellous. We fail the Lord each and every day, but he, Jesus Christ, never once failed his Father. And he, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, paid for all of our past, present and future sins. And he also paid for our failure to keep the Jewish law. He paid for our failure to love the Lord with all of our minds, our hearts, our souls and our strength. And yet 31, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Which you could spiritualise to be in reference to a saved man or woman loving the brethren. Absolutely. And once you are saved, then you will love the Lord God of the Bible as well, which should be obvious. But taking 28 down to 31 makes it very clear to me how the Jews needed to have a reawakening when it came to the love and true nature of the Lord. And also go back to the Old Testament, back to, I think it's Isaiah chapter 9, where it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to sharpen the law. He came to enhance the law. He came to correctly exegete and teach the law because it had been corrupted over the centuries by unbelieving scribes and Pharisees and teachers and so on and so forth. It took the Lord God of the Bible to come to the earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to correctly and finally not only teach the law to the people of Israel but to fulfill the law of Israel. 32. And the scribes said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbour as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any questions. This man wasn't far from the kingdom of God. This man had the potential to be saved. And this man, according to Calvinists, was not one of the elect. And yet the Lord gave him seven verses. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say to him, you cannot come to the kingdom of God because you are not one of my elect. He says you are not far from the kingdom of God, which makes it clear to me that this man who answered discreetly, who answered with intelligence, if you will, wasn't far from the kingdom of God. This man wasn't far from coming to the truth. This man wasn't far from being saved. And 34 concludes one more time, and no man after that durst or dared ask him any question, which I think almost pictures the 
great white throne judgment when the unsaved have been judged and found wanting and therefore they are totally unable to ask him any further questions. They are now going to be forever damned in the eternal lake of fire. And yet Jesus is not quite through with them. Look at 35. Then Jesus answered and said while he talked in the temple, How said the scribes that Christ is the son of David? He too was very good at asking questions and sometimes he would ask a question with a question. He did it a few chapters ago when they were asking him, where do you get your authority from? And the same is true today. Those that are in organized religion will ask us, where do you get your authority from? And we say, A, through the new birth, and B, through the word of God. But here, he wants the Pharisees to answer his question as to whom the Christ is. Look at 36, please. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David was the king of Israel. David was the greatest king pre the arrival, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And David, as the king of Israel, would not have called his own son Lord. He would have called Jehovah Lord, but he would never have called his own son Lord. 37. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. David had many sons, and yet he would never have called or referred to any of his sons, Lord. Lord was always in reference to the one true God. And on top of that, the Lord makes it very clear that when David spoke these words, he was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And the common people, as always, heard him gladly. 38. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. The same is true of today. There are many prayers in the Catholic Church and the Church of England, which are repetitive, which are totally in vain. And these fathers, these reverends, these vicars, these priests are deceiving, beaten down, poor widows, ignorant parties, those that don't know the truth of scripture and they give the impression of being holy and religious due to their long prayers, but they are also going to receive the greater damnation at the great white throne judgment, of course. 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living." And I believe on this occasion, this old lady had arrived at the temple to cast in all that she had for that day. I don't think she cast in all that she had without exception and went home to starve and die. I don't believe that for one moment. But I do believe that she went up to the temple via the treasury and threw in all that she had for that given time, for that given day. Whereas all the wealthy people had so much money and yet what they threw in to the treasury, which is a drop in the ocean. 
just a drop in a bucket. And he commends her for casting a farthing, which again goes back to English money. And you can tell that the King James is an English Bible for the people of England and then vicariously to the English-speaking people around the world. And he commends this old woman, this widow, for sacrificing far more than those that had far more than she did. And the word of God tells us how the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Not someone who gives because they have to, not someone who gives because they want to be seen to give, but someone who gives because they can give, they want to give, and they love giving. And this poor widow had cast in on this occasion all that she had and went home, no doubt, rejoicing that she had been able to give something back to the upkeep of the temple, which for the Jews, pre-70 AD, meant the world to them. So 44 verses conclude Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 down to 12 showed us once again how the Lord spoke in parables to the unbelieving Israelites and yet on this occasion he was quite happy for them to decipher the true meaning of the parable. Many prophets, many priests, many kings had been sent to the people of Israel going right back to Abraham and yet for the most part they were rejected, they were ridiculed and some were even put to death for their faith and love and service for the one true God of the Bible. But by verse 6, God sends his son, his well-beloved, hoping that they will revere his son. But the husbandmen, the farmers, from verse 7, said among themselves, conspiracy, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. Demonstrating that they were not the Lord's true people, and demonstrating how they too were on the wrong side of history. And eight, they took him, Jesus, and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. They crucified him outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus answers his own question from verse 9. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. 70 AD ultimately, but it occurred even before 70 AD with the cursing of the fig tree and with the fulfillment of the old covenant going into the new covenant and the believing Gentiles being grafted in to the roots of Israel. And twelve the Pharisees were ridiculed, they were infuriated by the Lord once again outsmarting them, and they wanted to lay hold on him, Jesus, and kill him, Jesus. But they couldn't, why? Because they feared the people, because the people heard him, Jesus, gladly. And they knew on top of that, that he, Jesus, had spoken this parable against them. So they had to leave him and go off on their way like you found with Satan tempting him for a season and then leaving him, only to return later, and the same was true of the Pharisees, only for them to come back and interact and seek to entice him in his words again on another occasion. The Pharisees worked hand in hand with Satan on so many different ways, on so many different occasions, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ, as always, was one step ahead of the Pharisees and Satan and Herod and Pilate and anyone or anything that would seek to come against him and overthrow his ministry. 13 down to 17, you can be a faithful believer in the one true God of the Bible and be a faithful member of society, supporting those in authority, praying for those in authority and paying taxes where applicable to those in authority as well. And the last part of 17, and they marvelled at him. They hated 
the Roman leadership. They wanted to be free of the Roman leadership, and yet you get the governments that you deserve because this group of unbelieving Israelites hated him, Jesus Christ, without a cause. And this group of unbelieving Israelites didn't truly believe the Old Testament. Yes, they gave a lip service, but they missed the true meaning of the Old Testament, which was to love God and man simultaneously, sincerely, and all of the time. 18 down to 27, they tried to trip him up with an embellished and an exaggerated account of somebody who had died, and because she had no children, she married seven brethren. And he says, you people don't know what you are speaking about. You greatly err, 24, because ye, all of you, don't know the scriptures, the word of God, neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, 25, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. There's no husband and wife team in heaven, just redeemed people who have the nature of angels. Sinless, sexless, and on top of that, male as well. Because angels in the word of God are always mentioned in the masculine pronoun. And on top of that, he says in 26, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in reference to Exodus, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. No mention there of Ishmael, no mention there of Esau, no mention there of Muhammad. I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob have I loved, being Israel, but Esau have I hated, who married into the Ishmaelite line, who according to Islamic tradition, was a forerunner and a descendant of Muhammad. So you could quite easily say, Jacob being Israel have I loved, but Esau being Muhammad have I hated. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, 27. Ye therefore do greatly err. And out goes praying to dead people. Out goes praying to the saints of Rome. 28 down to 34. A scribe has heard this interaction and he is convicted. He's also interested in the dialogue. And he says to the Lord Jesus Christ, you speak the truth. You've answered them well. Which of all the commandments is the greatest? And the Lord doesn't say to him, keep the Sabbath. He says, no. Hear, O Israel, not the church. Hear, O Israel, not the body of Christ. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Until you were born again, the Lord wasn't your God. Hear, O Israel, listen to me, you children of Israel, the Lord our God. Jesus was a Jew speaking to a Jewish scribe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One in every possible sense. And this piece of scripture also doesn't negate the triunity of God. One Lord in three persons. Hear, O Israel, listen to me, Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And yet I'll say this, it is impossible even for a saved person to worship the Lord all of the time with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul and all of their strength. But they want to because they love him. They want to because he did so much for them and he's doing so much for them each and every day. And yet we, including myself, fail him each and every day. And me and you and all of us 
continue to fall short of the glory of God. So God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ came to earth and died for us and he therefore was able to fulfill verses 29 down to 31 on our behalf. And yet we can love the Lord and we must love our brethren and we can also love our neighbours as well. Just because he died in our place, just because he is our substitutionary atonement doesn't negate us from trying to apply these verses in a spiritual sense each and every day of our lives. And 32 going down to 34 as we conclude this interaction between the scribe and the Pharisee, he calls the Lord Master, which would be in reference to him being a rabbi. The word master always means rabbi. You have said the truth, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. One God, and only one God. There's no Allah, there's no Buddha, there's no Confucius, there's no Judge Rutherford, there's no Joseph Smith, there's no Ra, there's no Yabulon, there's just one God. And he's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the Lord respects this man for answering discreetly, because to be seen to agree with Jesus, to be seen to follow Jesus, meant excommunication and humiliation and the total loss of everything from among this man's peers. In other words, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ would have cost him everything. And he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now come to me and believe on me. But we're not told if this scribe came to him. He probably didn't. And it says... And no man after that durst ask him any question. He silenced their mouths because he outsmarted them once again. And they were totally incredulous and infuriated and humiliated that they couldn't catch him in his own words. 35, going down to 45, he deals with David speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost concerning Jesus being his son. And yet, Jesus wasn't his physical son, he was a spiritual son, if you understand that. And David, of course, was a physical king with a physical kingdom, whereas Jesus Christ is still to receive his physical kingdom. So for now, he is a spiritual king, and he says, Who do you people say that Christ is? Or why do you people say that Christ is the son of David? In other words, who is Christ to you? How do you understand the Old Testament? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, 36, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. From Psalm 110. Who is David speaking to? Who is he calling him Lord? 37. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. They couldn't respond to it. They knew of course what he was insinuating. But to say yes, Christ is the son of David would mean that they had to receive Christ, Jesus, as their Messiah. And they weren't prepared to do that. So they shut their mouths and played dumb. And 38, going down to 40, he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees who like to wear long clothing. And the same is true today. Look at any priest or bishop or cardinal or pope. They too like to wear long clothing down to their ankles. And they too like to have long prayers. Chief seats in the synagogues, 39. But for today, chief seats in Parliament, in Congress, in Rome, in London in Washington, and also the United Nations. And these people devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The Hail Mary is repetitive and cannot save you. And even the Lord's Prayer, which should be called the Disciples' Prayer, was primarily for the Jewish apostles of the Lord. It can't save you. It's a prayer in anticipation for the Jewish king to come back to initiate his Jewish kingdom. And he condemns them for it and says, These 
shall receive greater damnation, greater punishment in hell, and they will suffer at a greater level in hell as well. And 41 down to 44, the Lord loves a cheerful giver who gives from the heart, not a giver who gives to be seen to give. And this poor widow gave all that she had on that particular day, all her living, he says, in 44, but went home rejoicing, and no doubt went home justified in the eyes of the Lord. So 44 verses, and as always, much ground has been covered. But next up, Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. This is a strange piece of scripture because the temple had been around for decades. The Lord had seen it pretty much every day of his life along with his disciples. And yet this disciple, spoken of in a singular, could quite possibly be Judas Iscariot. And he wants the Lord to look at the great temple because perhaps he knew that this would be the last time the Lord would see the temple. Look at verse 2. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In reference to 70 AD, when Titus sent his armies to surround Jerusalem, and he told his armies, don't destroy the temple, just surround it and cause the rebels amongst the Jewish leaders to come out and submit to my rule and reign. And yet his generals and his commanders disobeyed his orders because his orders weren't to destroy the temple. His orders were to contain the uprising. His orders were to deal with the zealots, those Jews that were against Rome's rule. And his commanders and generals destroyed the temple of Jerusalem and they fulfilled the Lord's prophecy that such a thing would occur, which goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ being deity. And it goes back to what Daniel told us in Daniel chapter 2, how the Lord sets up kingdoms and how he brings kingdoms down. And I wonder what Judas would have made of the prophecy from verse 2. Look at verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? They're almost whispering the question to him. And Peter, James and John and Andrew, two groups of brethren who loved him almost to perfection, but not quite, want him to further expound what he's told Judas and Vicarious to the others from verse 2 and also from Matthew 24. The scripture tells us that they asked him, and when shall be the sign or when will the end come? So three questions were put to him in Matthew 24, but here John Mark only lists two of the questions. Look at verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And many false prophets did arrive in Israel pre-70 AD, declaring to be the Messiah. And many people were deceived in 70 AD, and many people are being deceived today, in 2015. And one day, the Antichrist will come on the scene, and he too will deceive many. The unbelieving Jews will receive him to the uttermost, because they will think he's a long-awaited Messiah. 
7. And when you shall hear of wars, and rumours of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. The First World War, the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, the Falklands, the Gulf Wars, Afghanistan, ISIS. There's been so many wars over the past 100 plus years, and yet none of these wars have ushered in the second coming of Christ. And yet saying that, I must say this, that the Second World War resulted in the Jews going back to the land of Israel. So we are in the last days, but how near we are to the second coming of Christ is almost impossible to tell. Verse 8. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. The great tribulation is going to last for seven years, and the first half is called the beginning of sorrows, three and a half years, and the great tribulation per se, or the great tribulation in essence, is three and a half years. But we put the two three and a half years together to get the great tribulation but technically speaking the great tribulation is broken down into two parts the first part as i say is the beginning of sorrows which is going to lead up to the final three and a half years when the antichrist arrives on the scene and pretty much destroys everyone and anything that will not worship him and he says in verse 8 kingdom against kingdom earthquakes in diverse places different places Famines and troubles, these are the beginnings of sorrows. And we've had these two over the past 100 plus years, and yet the Lord has still not returned. So we have to be careful when we hold our Bibles in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, that we don't get too caught up with all the hysteria which goes on around the world in anticipation for the Lord's return. He's going to come back like a thief in the night, and whether you are ready for him or not, if you're saved, you will be raptured. And even if you're not ready for him, you will still be raptured nevertheless. But here the Lord is speaking to his Jewish apostles, pre the body of Christ, pre the mystery of the church. Here the Jewish Messiah is speaking to his Jewish apostles concerning Israel proper. And on top of that, he's got 70 AD in mind. Most of what you find in Mark 13 is found also in Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is a much more detailed and thorough account of the last days, which I haven't got time to look at today. But here, Mark will still give you enough material to understand what he is telling us, and warning all of us vicariously, I might add. Look at verse 9, please. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Synagogues, nine councils, in reference to the Sanhedrin, ye plural, are going to be beaten, and ye plural shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. This, of course, will be in reference to what you find in the book of Acts, where Peter and John, and later Paul, were brought before councils and synagogues, rulers and kings, especially Paul, in reference to kings. And this will be done for them to share their testimony. Look at verse 10. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. And it was before the end of the New Testament. The apostles within 30 years had pretty much covered the world. And that goes back to what I've said previously. How the Lord didn't choose one successor but 11 apostles. And they chose Matthias to replace Judas. 
And later, Acts chapter 9, the Lord called Paul and commissioned him for active service, demonstrating how there's no one man in authority, there's no one ultimate chief, if you will, but a group of faithful brethren. And 10 one more time, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. You think of today, that term published, I'm going to publish an article, I'm going to publish my book, I'm going to declare to the world what I believe. And yes, we are living in a generation where these things are possible. If you go to the book of Revelation, it speaks about the two witnesses being put to death and then resurrected. And people around the world were able to see it. How is that possible? 100 years ago, it wasn't. But it's possible today because we're living in that generation, which could see, not will see, but which could see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. And that was true of the apostles. Paul never panicked. Paul never said, the Lord has forsaken me and I'm through. Demas had forsaken him. And we hope that Timothy got to him before the end of Second Timothy. But the Lord never forsook him. And yet on top of this, this scripture must also be understood to be speaking, I believe anyway, in reference to the 144,000 Jewish male evangelists. More on that in a moment. Look at verse 12. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And that also happened pre-70 AD. The pressure on believing Jews and Gentiles to deny the Lord Jesus Christ was immense. Nero started to persecute Christians to perfection, along with Titus and Domitian, and many brothers caused their spiritual brethren, and perhaps physical brethren too, to be martyred for their faith in the Lord, and many fathers betrayed their children, and many children betrayed their parents. And that was a tragedy that the early church experienced, and this is also happening in Islamic countries around the world today. But take a look at verse 13, please. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. To be hated of all men without exception for my name's sake could be in reference I believe to the great tribulation because they weren't hated amongst all nations for his name's sake around 70 AD but this is more likely to be in reference to those living during the great tribulation because the two witnesses arrive in the book of revelation and they are treated with great contempt great hostility and eventually the antichrist kills them and the people around the world start to send presents to one another so when it says you will be hated of all men, for my name's sake, but he that shall endure, or overcome, until the end of the great tribulation, shall be saved, not from their sins, but they will be saved from the deception, from the falling away, from the apostasy, from verse chapter 12. So verse 13, if I was to look at it one more time, and try and spiritualise it to the present, but he that shall endure unto the end, he that overcomes to the end, of the great tribulation or of the church age shall be saved not from their sins but will receive a full reward at the judgment seat of Christ and yet some people take this verse to suggest that you have to endure the great tribulation in order to be saved which of course is faith and works which is highly problematic 
because the Old Testament Jews were unable to keep the law. Acts 15, the apostles also told us how they too failed to keep the law. So how are people expected to overcome the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation, not take the mark of the beast during the Great Tribulation, and yet still be saved? And on top of that, our works, our righteousness, according to Isaiah 64, is as filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. So I do not believe, and I've never believed, that during the Great Tribulation the rules somehow change and people are expected to have faith and works running side by side and somehow their works have to outdo their faith. And if their works don't outdo their faith, they can lose their salvation and go to hell when they die. I don't believe it for one moment. And I'll say this also in reference to this erroneous teaching, how tribulation saints are going to be saved by their faith and works. Just picture this for a moment, if you will. They arrive in eternity, these tribulation saints, and they are asked amongst church-age saints, how did you get to heaven? And they say, well, I got here by my faith and my works, overcame the Antichrist, I didn't receive the mark of the beast, I was victorious. And the church-age saints say, well, we got saved just by believing and trusting in the shed blood of Christ. It's almost going to picture a sense of boasting. One group got to heaven by faith alone, and another group, according to those that hold to faith and works in the Great Tribulation, have arrived due to their faith and works, and their victory over the Antichrist, and their refusal to accept the mark of the beast. I don't believe it for a moment. Mankind has always been saved by their faith in the one true God. And yet I'll say this very briefly, there's a slight difference between Abraham back in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament and yet Paul in Romans 4 quotes the account back in Genesis where Abraham believed on the Lord and it was accounted to him God's righteousness was imputed to Abraham by believing on the Lord God and of course circumcision was prevalent back in the Old Testament whereas today baptism is prevalent and yet even saying that Women in the Old Testament were never circumcised, unlike what you find in some Islamic cultures today. But in the New Covenant, men and women are baptised in total immersion. So you can't even take circumcision and somehow compare it with baptism for the New Covenant. The two don't quite match. But faith in the Lord God is what saves us. And Hebrews chapter 11 says, He that comes to God must believe that he is in order to be saved. But let's move on, please. Look at verse 14. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand where ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. But let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garments. Daniel 17 Judea, 17, housetop, 15, the abomination of desolation, 14. This is all Jewish. And also the Lord quotes Daniel as a literal person who spoke, who prophesied about the abomination of desolation in reference to the Antichrist defiling the temple which is going to be built in the Great Tribulation. And although this was slightly fulfilled in 70 AD, it's going to be ultimately fulfilled in the great tribulation 17 but woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days and pray ye that your flight be not in the winter that term flights i know it's an old 
English term, but if you look at today's world, flying to Israel during the Sabbath is quite difficult at the moment, and yet during the Great Tribulation it's going to be almost impossible. And as always, he's thinking about the welfare of those that give suck in those days, those that are breastfeeding their children in those days, because they're going to come very quickly, and for the most part, people are going to be totally unaware of the judgment that is going to fall upon them. Look at verse 19. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not, from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. Once again, he points back to the creator creating the world, and a creation always presupposes a creator, and he says what is about to occur has never happened before. This is a one-off event, and this is almost going to make Armageddon look like a picnic. But take a look at verse 20, please. And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. In reference to those people who were chosen for service, not salvation, and also in reference to the 144,000 Jewish male evangelists. For their sake, and for their sake alone, and on top of that, for the sake of those that are going to believe on their message, he, the Lord, has shortened those days. Why? Because nobody would survive. The Great Tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, Jacob's trouble, is for Israel slash the world, not for the church being the body of Christ, of course. So for the sake of the 144,000 who were chosen for service, not salvation, and for those people that are going to believe on their message, God in his sovereignty and in his mercy has limited those days. Otherwise, like I say, nobody would be saved. Look at verse 21. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders, to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I foretold you all things. It's not possible to deceive the elect, in reference to the 144,000, they are going to be victorious. And yet, the warning has to go out, nevertheless, because of weak and unstable and uneducated and uninformed brethren. The word of God says, my people perish through lack of knowledge. So he says in 23, but take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. In other words, there's no excuse now for you to be deceived for you to fall into the trap of false Christs, plural, and false prophets, plural, because many are going to arise and do signs and wonders, and if it were possible, even the elect would fall for their deception. But praise be to God, it's not possible for the elect to be ultimately deceived. You can be temporarily deceived, of course, if you're not in fellowship with the Lord, but you will never be ultimately, permanently, and forever deceived by these charlatans and false prophets and false messiahs if you belong to the Lord God of the Bible. And yet saying that, I will just add a quick footnote. Even if you were to fall into sin and apostasy and embrace some of these false teachers, thankfully your salvation will never be questioned. But your potential place in the millennial kingdom is dependent on how you lived after you were saved. But let's move on, please. 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, 
and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. It hasn't happened yet. And those that hold to pre-trust thinking struggle with these verses. Because if you take these verses literally, and I always do, it's impossible to be a pre-trust. Because these verses haven't yet been fulfilled. 26. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. That also hasn't happened yet. And the Jehovah's Witnesses said that Christ was going to come back in 1914, I believe it was. And then it was 1918. And they took three more guesses at when he was going to come back. And of course he hasn't yet come back. But it says here how they are going to see him, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Revelation says every eye will see him and people are going to wail and mourn when he comes back. Not in reference to welcoming him, but in reference to fear and dread. He's coming back to judge. He's come back to rule and reign. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, being a false system, said, well, he came back in a spiritual sense. He came back in an invisible sense. In other words, he came back invisibly, and only the Witnesses can see him through spiritual eyes. And that, of course, is hogwash. When he comes back, every eye will physically see him. He's not going to come back in some invisible manner, where just a few people are going to see him in a spiritual sense. They are twisting the scriptures. But here, one more time, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Or great power and glory. It hasn't happened yet, because it's still to occur. 27. And then shall he send his angels, and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven, north, east, south, west, wherever you are in the great tribulation, his angels are going to find you they're going to gather you together and take you up to jerusalem and also those that are in heaven are going to come back with the lord revelation 19 to witness his literal kingdom on the earth verse 28 now learn a parable of the fig tree when a branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves ye know that summer is near so ye in like manner when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass, till all these things be done. The generation which is going to be alive during the great tribulation will see these things come to pass. The generation living in 70 AD did not see these things come to pass, not in their entirety anyway. They got a partial glimpse of what is going to occur during the great tribulation but that generation living in 70 AD only saw parts of what is still to occur during the great tribulation look at 31 heaven and earth shall pass away but my word shall not pass away hasn't happened yet the earth is still here heaven is still above us and his words plural are no doubt in reference to the word of God but take a look please at verse 32 but of that day and that hour knoweth no man no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And Muslims quote this piece of scripture to degrade the deity of the Lord. The Jehovah's Witnesses quote this scripture to degrade the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you must remember this, that the Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself of his deity, Philippians chapter 2, and took on him the nature of a servant. So here and now, around 30 AD, no one knew the time, nor the hour, no, not even the angels, nor the sun, 
but only the Father. But in John chapter 10, he says, A Father and I are one. So be careful when you read these types of scriptures, because on their own, they only give you so much information. But when you read these verses in light of other verses, you see very clearly how the Lord Jesus Christ, as a Son of Man, limited himself and restricted himself of his knowledge. Why? Because he wanted to be in submission to God the Father. Verse 33. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. That's true. The apostles did not know the time of the Lord's return. Those living pre-70 AD did not know the timing of the Lord's return. And those living in the Great Tribulation would not know the time of the Lord's return. And those of us living today in the church age also do not know the exact timing of the Lord's returning. That's why we live by faith, not by sight. And I'll say this, please, that if you know someone who thinks they are a prophet and they are giving you dates or times as to when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, switch them off, shut them down, rebuke them, warn others about them and turn from them because they don't know any more than you know. The Pope of Rome doesn't know any more than you know. The Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't know any more than you know. The leader of the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians doesn't know any more than you know. And the same is true in the world of the Charismatics, the Word of Faith movement, and the Pentecostals, the Holiness movement, non-denominational people, Baptists, non-Baptists, Congregationalists, this group, that group, it makes no difference. No one knows when he's coming back and no one knows more than you know concerning the Lord's return. So live by faith, rest in him, follow him, walk with him, worship him and enjoy him. Because no one without exception knows the exact time or day of the Lord's return. You got saved by your faith in him, so rest in your faith in him. Verse 34, for the son of man is as a man taken a far journey, who left his house, and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. There's a picture of the Lord departing and entrusting his house to his servants, and the porter to watch until he returns. 35. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crying, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And the meaning for this term sleeping simply underscores the dangers of becoming lukewarm, falling asleep. That term, he was found sleeping on duty, underscores a faithless worker, a faithless servant. And sleeping on the job in the book of Acts resulted in the Roman soldiers being put to death when Peter escaped right under their nose. Verse 37 and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. All, without exception, not just the apostles, and they were told, and we were told, to watch. For the Antichrist? No, for Christ. We were told to watch and wait for his return. And 37 he says, I'm not just saying this to you, the twelve, but to all, without exception. From the apostles to Pentecost, from Pentecost to the end of the church age, to the end of the tribulation, to the second coming of Christ. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch, watch and watch. So 37 verses conclude Mark chapter 13. So verses 1 to 4, and we discover the Lord 
responding to a question from one of his disciples, quite possibly Judas, about the glory of the temple which had been built by Herod the Great. And Jesus says, never mind this temple, the days are coming when it's going to be destroyed to the ground, literally flattened. And Peter and James and John and Andrew were shocked to hear this, and they asked him to explain more of this to them, which pictures progressive revelation again. And he tells them how the days are coming when many false prophets and false messiahs are going to arise and deceive many. But it won't be possible for the elect to be deceived in an ultimate sense, temporarily perhaps, but not ultimately. In other words, you won't lose your salvation, but you could lose your place in the millennial kingdom if you're not careful. So look out for these false teachers. But I'm telling you this, he says, you've been warned in advance. So don't think when you arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, you can say, well, I didn't know, Lord, because I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you. And he speaks about 70 AD, but beyond that, he sees a temple being built in the Great Tribulation, which will be defiled by the Antichrist. But he's looking way beyond 70 AD into the Great Tribulation when the final Antichrist arrives and deceives many people and causes many people to betray their loved ones in order to save their own necks. For the sake of the elect, in reference to the 144,000, those days are going to be shortened. That period of time is going to be shortened and heavily controlled. Otherwise, they too would be massacred by the Antichrist and his army. He goes on to say how the generation which will be alive pre the Lord's return will see all these things come to pass. And on top of that, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Still future, but his words are eternal, of course. And no one knows the time, nor the hour, or the place, but the Father alone. And to wrap up, 13, he says from 34 down to 36, What I am saying to you, I am saying to all of you. Watch. Be aware of this. Act on this. Watch to be prepared. Don't be deceived temporarily or permanently, because many people, scores of people, are going to be deceived on a grand scale. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. From 37. Let's come in suddenly, 36. He find you sleeping, lukewarm, backslidden, out of fellowship with the Lord, and you lose your rewards, and quite possibly your place in the millennial kingdom. But on top of that, you have to endure unto the end to avoid being deceived by the Antichrist. So next up, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. There's almost two worlds running parallel here. On the one hand, the scribes and the chief priests are plotting, they are planning to kill him. And that term craft means craftiness, it means deception. And yet, on the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ, going about his everyday business, is just days away from dying for the sins of the world. But they hated him without a cause, which is still very much the problem today. Until you are born again, you too are at enmity with God, and you too hate him. You too hate the Lord God of the Bible, because you are dead in your sins, and you too need to be reconciled to the Lord God of the Bible. Verse 2. But they said, Not on the feast day, 
lest there be an uproar of the people. That was unlikely because the Jewish leaders had been quite successful in the past when it came to controlling the people. But they couldn't take the chance of there being an uproar. They couldn't take the chance of there being a riot. So they said, no, let's do it more subtly. Let's extend this conspiracy out a little further. Look at verse 3. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman, having an alabaster box of ointments of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. Simon the leper had no doubt been healed previously to verse 3, and yet the stigma has remained. He's still referred to as Simon the leper, which underscores the reality of sin. You might be a saved sinner, but the stain, the stigma of your sin is still there. People still remember you before you were saved, and if you came to the Lord as a wicked, depraved sinner, they will always remember you as a wicked, depraved sinner. Look at verse 4. And there were some that had indignation within themselves, and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? Who are these people? Yes, Judas Iscariot was no doubt amongst them, but it says there were some, plural, who said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? What a strange thing to say. Now, I don't think this group of people would have been from among the twelve, but this group of people must have been among the seventy. We may never know who these people are, and yet how tragic it is. We know from John 6.6.6 how many of his disciples walked no more with him when he explained the true meaning of following him. But that was in the past. We are hours away from his death. And yet there are still in his camp unbelievers, perhaps murmurers, backbiters, perhaps even closet scribes and chief priests found from verse 1. Verse 5. For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. 300 pence, English money again, three pounds. But this term, they murmured against her. Who were these people? We know from Matthew 28 that some still did not believe. It's a mystery within scripture. How could anyone live with the Lord for three and a half years and still doubt him? And on top of that, how could anyone live with the Lord for three and a half years and find this type of mercy and love and respect problematic. How could anyone criticise this woman as she anoints the head of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this woman, of course, is Mary of Bethany, Lazarus's sister. Verse 6. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. And he says, Why do ye, plural, trouble her? It's a strange scripture, this. Judas was probably the ringleader, and that's a picture of false teaching. False teaching spreads like cancer. And perhaps Judas was able to contaminate two or three fellow murmurers. We may never know, but the Lord puts them down, the Lord rebukes them, and he allows her to continue to anoint his head. Verse 7. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always, not in a physical sense. But he says the poor are always going to be amongst you. And by stating this through prophecy, out goes third world debt. Out goes alleviating worldwide poverty. Verse 8. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, 
This also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And that's true. We're still speaking about it 2,000 years later. And I say this also very briefly, how the Lord loved Lazarus, Mary and Martha, like a father would love their children. And King David, type of Christ, loved Saul and Jonathan and other members of Saul's family. And I say that because some people suggest that David had an inappropriate relationship with Jonathan, which is completely false and bogus. David's love for Jonathan is the same as the Lord's love for Lazarus and his sisters. David's love for Jonathan was a similar love to that of a blood brother. But here, Mary, anointed the head of the Lord, pushed past the contempt and the whispering and the backbiting from Judas, no doubt, but also others, and she remained firm and faithful unto the end. So the Lord rebuking Judas and his cohorts, look at verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. Yet another strange piece of scripture. It was one thing to not believe on the Lord. It was something else altogether to now seek to betray him for money. Verse 11. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. He too doesn't want a public scene. Verse 2. And he too wants to do it at the best possible moment. And who knows, perhaps somewhere in the warped mind of Judas Iscariot, perhaps he thought he could replace the Lord. Perhaps he thought he would lead the disciples into the next phase of the Lord's ministry. Because he's called the son of perdition, which is a name for the Antichrist. But that's just speculation on my part. But take a look at verse 12, please. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go, and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? It's business as usual in the minds of his disciples, in anticipation of the Passover, from verse 1. Look at 13. And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man, bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. Who this man was, we may never know, but even more, Intriguingly to me, the disciples are oblivious as to what the Lord has in mind. They are oblivious to how near he is to going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Yes, he had told them on so many occasions, but they could not receive it and would not receive it. It was too painful for them, so they buried it to the back of their minds. Verse 14. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the goodman of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber? where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. This man is now going to point the Lord and his disciples to the guest chamber, a private room where they are going to break bread during the Passover. 15. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. Some people suggest this man could be a picture of the Holy Ghost, bringing people to the Lord for fellowship and salvation, of course. But this was an individual, this was a literal man, who knew of the Lord and dropped everything at a moment's notice when the disciples arrived. Look at verse 16. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found, as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. The Lord sent them out by faith. They approached this man by faith. They spoke to this man by faith. And this man fulfilled their request by faith. This is a mystery. This is a supernatural event, of course. 
and yet the apostles have to be commended for going out by faith in anticipation of this individual who wasn't known to them. And this goes back to how progressive revelation continues throughout the word of God. But their faith was rewarded because this man has the upper room ready and furnished for the Lord and his apostles. Verse 17. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. This was devastating news. It was bad enough that he had told them time after time that he'd be crucified like a common criminal for the sins of the world. But now he's telling them how one among them is about to betray them. Perhaps Peter, John and Andrew got wind of the conversation from verses 3 down to 9. But yet I'm still of the opinion that they were shocked when they heard this. In fact, look at verse 19, please. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And that would include Peter and John. They may have had a hunch, they may have had a feeling that it could be this person or that person, but I still think for the most part they were oblivious as to what was going on. And that goes back to what I've been saying all along, how Peter had no special light from the Lord. John had no special light from the Lord. Andrew had no special light from the Lord. Is it I? And another said, Is it I? They were dumbstruck and shocked, if not appalled, to hear this news. Look at verse 20. And he answered, and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. It's one of you. And yet they had no idea who he was even referring to. In fact, I'll say this. It's quite possible that some of his closest associates thought, could it be me? What does the scripture say? There's not a just man on the face of the earth. Peter's already said to the Lord, back in Luke chapter 5, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. They all had the potential to betray him. Man, in his best state, is altogether vanity. And I think it's quite possible, even his closest friends and associates question themselves, albeit for a split second. Could it be me? Could it be him? Which one of us is going to betray him? They just didn't know. And anticipation must have killed them. Look at verse 21. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Foretold back in the Old Testament. And yet the Lord is saying it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. What a thing to say. Which clearly suggests to me that Judas had free will. He wasn't forced, he wasn't coerced, he wasn't encouraged to do this. But through his own wicked heart, and of course Satan behind him. In fact we know from Luke 22 how Satan entered into Judas Iscariot to fulfil his task of betraying the Lord. Right under the nose of his fellow apostles. He was a man with no shame. He was a man which was despicable. And this also demonstrates how the Lord is sovereign. A man has free will. And yet somehow, in a way that I don't understand, the two come together and the Lord is able to marry them up. Look at verse 22, please. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. This is a picture, of course, of communion. 23, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. 22, bread to eat which would have been unleavened bread. 
not a way for you find at your local Catholic church. And a cup to drink, 23, which is further defined in 24. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. My blood from the New Covenant is shed for many. It's shed for everyone, but it's only going to be applicable to those that personally appropriate it. 25. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Fruit of the vine, going back to 23, not red wine or white wine. And he's not going to drink it until that day in the kingdom of God. But take a look, please, at verse 26. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. This is remarkable. They've just been told that someone among them is about to betray him. And yet they've gone from there to break in bread, to sing in a hymn, before they go off to the Mount of Olives. It's business as usual for the most part. And yet I believe their hearts were very heavy by this point of time. 27. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. I will smite the shepherd. God will smite the shepherd. God will smite God. And the sheep, you twelve, and perhaps the seventy as well, shall be scattered. It's bad enough that there was a betrayer amongst them, but now he's telling them how all of them are going to be offended and are going to scatter like sheep, like rats, fleeing a sinking ship. Verse 28. But after that I am risen. I will go before you into Galilee. That's pretty much where his ministry began, and that's pretty much where his ministry is going to end. 29. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And I believe he truly meant that. I believe Peter meant business for the Lord. We know from the earlier chapters of Mark how Peter's house became the Lord's house. He allowed them to take the roof off, to lower the man of the palsy down to the ground to be healed by the Lord God of the Bible. So I think Peter meant this when he said it, but Peter underestimated just how weak man is. Whether you're saved or unsaved, it makes little difference. Mankind, for the most part, is incredibly weak. Yes, the spirit is willing in reference to a saved party, but the flesh is weak, picturing, of course, the two natures of the believer. But take a look at verse 30, please. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Yet another clear prophecy of the Lord being denied by all of them. But take a look at 31. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. They all truly believed that they could last the course, and yet how wrong they all were. When push came to shove, they all fell away. And it must have broken their hearts as well. Verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And I believe this is the commencement of the Lord's atonement. We know from scripture how Adam lost his innocence back in the original garden. And the Lord Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. And here he's going to regain some of the lost innocence from Adam. 33. 
And he taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and began to be so amazed, and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch. He's in great agony now. The weight of the world is literally upon his shoulders. And as always, Peter, James, and John are right in the thick of it. 35. And he went forward a little, and fell on the ground, and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He fell on the ground. Elsewhere, he was sweating blood. The pain and the agony from 32 down to 34 must have been enormous. It must have been excruciating. Here is a man that had never sinned a day in his life, and yet here and now, the weight of the world, the sins of the world, are starting to be poured out on him. 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. There's a picture of the Son of Man emptying himself of his deity, Philippians chapter 2, and now being in total submission and harmony with his Father in heaven. Take this cup away from me, picturing divine judgment, of course. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. It's not what I want, it's what you want. And nobody could have forced the Lord Jesus Christ to come to earth to die for the sins of the world. But he knows that if he doesn't die for the sins of the world, people like Peter and James and John will die and go to hell for their sins. So he has to go to the cross for them, he has to go to the cross for me, and he has to go to the cross for you, and you, and you, and especially you. 37. And he cometh, and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Peter was grieved. Peter was under great pressure. When you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you are really up against it, you just need some time out. You just want to close your eyes and go to sleep, and sometimes not even wake up, when you really are at your lowest. And here he calls Peter Simon. Not Cephas, but Simon. 38. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And Paul lamented over this fact in Romans chapter 7, and also in Philippians chapter 3. He wanted to do great things for the Lord 24-7. But Paul struggled with the old man. And here the Lord reaffirms it. How the spirit truly is ready. The spirit picturing a regenerated man. And Peter was regenerated at this point in time. Although he didn't have the Holy Spirit. Until after the Lord's resurrection. But the flesh, his old man, is weak. The flesh in Peter and Paul and you and I and all of us is weak, it's despicable, it's wicked, it's sinful, and one day it's going to die, and go six feet into the ground. 39. And again he went away, and prayed, and spake the same words. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a man of great prayer, and here the Lord is suffering an immense amount of pain. The sins of the world are being poured out on him. A man who knew no sin is now offering his soul as a sacrifice for sin. You can't imagine it, but it's happening for your sins, it's happening for my sins, and it's happening for the sins of the world. 40. And when he returned, 
he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wished they what to answer him. They couldn't handle it. It was too much for them. If you're a parent, imagine sitting down with your two-year-old or your three-year-old and explaining your finances to your children. Imagine trying to explain your mortgage problems with your children. Or imagine sitting down with your two-year-old or your three-year-old and trying to explain the British economy or British foreign policy. You couldn't do it. The child wouldn't understand it. It'd be too much for them. And here, the apostles are like children. They were tired, they were trying to sleep, their eyes were heavy, and they didn't even know what to answer him. What can you say to the God-man who is suffering for the sins of the world? How can you console? How can you comfort the Lord God of the universe? It's impossible. And yet he wanted them at his left hand and his right hand to experience some of his suffering. He showed the same men his transfiguration, a picture of the second advent, and he wasn't going to go to the cross without allowing them to experience his greatest moment of suffering to date. 41. And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Sinners meaning immoral people. Sinners meaning sodomites, lesbians, whoremongers. Sinners meaning dogs, the lowest of the low. And yet, in the New Testament, all of us, pre our salvation, are called sinners. 42. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. He's here. He's come for me to betray me. Rise up, let's get ready to go. And from John 18, the Lord says to the arresting temple guards, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall backwards, picturing, first of all, the Lord is deity. Secondly, how they are enemies of the cross. Those that know the Lord don't fall backwards. They fall on their face to worship him. They prostrate themselves in reverence towards his majesty and his nature. But he says to them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Why did he do that? First of all, to protect his apostles. Only he was going to be arrested and taken to the cross. He wasn't prepared for his apostles to be arrested and taken to the cross. And that's why so many people are sent to arrest him with sticks and swords. And we call that today, tooled up. They were tooled up in expectation of a fight. They wanted to arrest the Lord and his twelve apostles, and the seventy. Deduct Judas from the twelve. He was a traitor. So they're going to arrest the Lord, the eleven, and the seventy. And whoever else was present, they too would have been arrested and detained. And he says, I am, and they all fall backwards. And he says, just take me and leave the rest, because I am deity. 43. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. It's like a small army coming to arrest the sinless, peaceful saviour of the world. 44. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. The kiss of life when it comes to resuscitating someone, but on this occasion the kiss of death. And he says, take him away safely. Lead him away 
safely, detain him safely. What a strange thing to say to them. What did he think was going to happen? Once the Lord had been arrested, he must have known they would detain him, interrogate him, and eventually crucify him. But Judas was a very mysterious man. Judas was an enigma. Judas was a paradox of a man. But take a look at verse 45, please. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him, and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. Master, Master, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Lord, Lord. Take a look at Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, I never knew you. This is picturing almost the great white throne judgment. Master, master, look what I've done. I've prophesied in thy name. I've cast out devils in thy name. I've done many wonderful works in thy name. And he had done. Judas Iscariot had been sent out with the eleven to do miracles. And yet, John chapter 6, he is called a devil. So I would suggest you underline this piece of scripture in your Bible. Master, master, Lord, Lord, check yourself. Examine yourself in light of scripture because Judas Iscariot, barring the fact that he was a devil, was also a human being. He was a literal man and yet he was never saved to begin with. And he kisses him, the audacity of it. But look at verse 46. And they laid their hands on him and took him, their filthy hands touching the sinless saviour of the world. Talk about contamination. This man who knew no sin has now come into contact with sinners 41 who have laid their hands on him. Talk about audacious. But take a look at verse 47. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Being Peter, of course, and I believe that Peter wanted to cut this man's head off. And Peter was a very well-meaning man and yet he failed once again on this occasion to understand the Lord's ministry. Last time the Lord said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And here Peter, always well intended, like I say, totally misunderstood what was occurring, and cuts off this man's right ear. And scripture tells us how the Lord put his right ear back on his head. But Benny Hinn couldn't do that. Joyce Mayer couldn't do that. You couldn't do it. The Pope couldn't do it. And I certainly could not do it. But Jesus Christ could, because he's God, and on top of that, he's a loving saviour. And yet the mystery of that miracle is how this individual never came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His ear was cut off, and within seconds it was put back on his head. And that goes back to the earlier verses of this chapter, underlining the depravity of unsaved men and women before they are born again. It's tragic, and yet it's true. Until you're born again, you are an enemy of God. And you are a child of the devil in a spiritual sense as well. 48. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Every day he was in the temple preaching or near the temple. And yet he says the scripture must be fulfilled. But they came with swords and staves, 48 to take him. They came armed. They came tooled up, looking for a fight, perhaps hoping for a fight. And he says, I was with you daily in the temple teaching. I did nothing in a corner. I did nothing in secret. Unlike secret societies, I might add. 50. And they all forsook him and fled. When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. 
And now the persecution has kicked in and they've scarpered like rats trying to escape a sinking ship. He said it would happen. They would not believe it. And now it has happened and they have fled. All of them have forsaken him in a flash. But take a look at verse 51. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him, and he left his linen cloth and fled from them naked. Tradition tells us that this young man is John Mark, the author of this gospel. And it's also interesting from 47 how John Mark omits Peter being the culprit who cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. So it's quite possible from 51 down to 52, if we take this tradition, this theory, this suggestion of this man being John Mark, seriously, if we take it to heart, if we accept it, then it's quite possible that John Mark was one of the 70, which means he was there, which means he saw what was occurring, which means he further reinforces the authenticity of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and the scribes. They've waited for three and a half years for this moment to occur. And it's finally occurred. And for them, it must have seemed like Christmas had come early. 54. And Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Peter was a very bold man. Yet he failed on... Numerous occasions, as we all do, I might add, and yet here he has followed the Lord right up to the palace of the high priest. And now he's sitting outside with the servants, warming himself, because no doubt it's bitterly cold. 55. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, and found none. That's the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and they wanted to have this kangaroo court as quick as possible and yet this must be late evening going into the early hours of the morning this was no time to conduct a trial 56 for many bear false witness against him but their witness agreed not together they couldn't even get their witnesses to agree to the script which had been laid out for them they couldn't even get these false witnesses to get their stories straight because it was rushed it was done Late evening going into the early hours of the morning. 57. And there arose certain, and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. From John chapter 2, of course. And that just goes back to their total inability to understand what he was telling them. Like the Catholics totally misunderstand, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is metaphorical language. Look at verse 59. But neither so did their witness agree together. This is almost a farce. They can't even agree on what they're going to say at this kangaroo court post-midnight. It's a farce. It's ridiculous. And yet, a man's life is at stake here. 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which is witness against thee? The high priest wanted the Lord to engage in this so-called trial, because they wanted to turn around and say to Pilate, we, the Jewish Sanhedrin, have examined him, the defendant, and found him guilty, and on top of that, the defendant has had a fair trial. It was a mockery, of course, but it underscores once again how far people will go 
to get what they want, and to attain their power and kingdom. 61. But he held his peace, and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus totally ignores the false witnesses and their lies and their conspiracy against him. But the moment the question is put to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He says in verse 62, And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Not the literal high priest, not the literal scribes and Pharisees sitting or standing right in front of him, but the unbelieving Jews at the second advent. Revelation chapter 1, 63. Then the high priest rent his clothes, and saith, What need we any further witnesses? To rent his clothes, to rip his clothes, was illegal. And on top of that, he says, We don't even need any further witnesses. Why? Because he's affirmed his deity. And on top of that, he's coming back on the right hand of power in the clouds of heaven. They couldn't miss it. It was messianic, left, right, and center. And they are incredulous at this point in time. In fact, it's quite possible that they even thought the Lord would throw himself on the mercy of the court and seek clemency. But like Judas Iscariot, they totally misunderstood him. And like Judas Iscariot and Herod and Pilate, they too were on the wrong side of history. 64. Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now the entire Jewish council have innocent blood on their hands. But not stopping there, to further vent their anger and frustration and bitterness and envy and contempt towards him. Look at verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. What brave men these people were. Jesus was bound. He was detained. He was blindfolded, and they're spitting on him, they're mocking him, and they're striking him. And this goes back to just how wicked mankind is. Mankind corporately put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, the Romans did it. Yes, the Jews betrayed him. But mankind in general put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 66. And as Peter was beneath in a palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. It's quite possible that Peter, underneath the palace, may have heard some of this interrogation. We know that John entered into the palace from his own gospel, and he later was able to bring Peter in as well. But I'm just wondering how likely it was that Peter was able to hear some of this interrogation, some of this mockery. But now, the denial of all denials is about to commence. 68. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. Also from 67, Peter was recognized by a maid of the high priest. And if you are a faithful, Bible-believing Christian, you too are going to be recognized by those that don't believe in the Lord. And the time is coming that you will be recognized by enemies of the Lord who are going to detain you and interrogate you and quite possibly put you to death for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he denied 68, saying, I know not, neither do I understand what you say. He's almost trying to insinuate that she speaks a different language to him. And he went out 
into the porch and a cock crew. Now Peter's timetable is ticking down. Now Peter's day of reckoning is coming to her head. 69. And her maids saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. No doubt the Jews had regional accents, and not only was he recognised in a physical sense, but his speech also gave him away. But take a look at verse 71. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. He lived with him, he walked with him, and he too, according to church tradition, would die for him. But what does the scripture say? The fear of man bringeth a snare. He was fearful of man, and now he's in meltdown. I don't know this man of whom ye speak, not just you, but the previous maid. And he's cursing and swearing. And like I said previously, Peter, at this point in time, was a saved man. And so for me, this is further evidence of the battle of the two natures in the believer. Verse 72. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. He cried like a baby. He wept. He was grieving. He was in great pain. And his sorrow led to repentance. But the sorrow of Judas led to suicide. And ultimately hell, but for Peter, heaven. Two servants of the Lord, two servants have denied him in two different ways, but one went on to be victorious, and the other went on to be a total failure. So 72 verses from Mark chapter 14, and this is the longest chapter to date, and as always much material has been covered during today's study. Verses 1 to 2, the conspiracy is now building up to the final crescendo, and yet two worlds are running parallel and eventually they're going to come to a collision. Three down to nine, Mary of Bethany was a faithful woman who loved the Lord right up until the end, came to anoint him, and yet some, plural, were critical of what she was doing. Judas would no doubt have been one of them, but whoever the others were, we may never know. From ten down to sixteen, Judas finally decides to betray the Lord, but not before the Lord has sent out two disciples to prepare the final place of the breaking of bread in preparation for the Passover. 17 down to 21, the Lord breaks the news how there's a traitor in their midst. And they were shocked. They had no idea who it was. Is it I? Is it I? Could it be me? They just did not know. 22 down to 25, the Lord has initiated the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, which we do every Sunday at this ministry. 26 down to 31, he reaffirms how all of his apostles, without exception, are going to fall away. 32 down to 38. He's in great agony. He feels he's at the point of death. He falls on the ground due to the pressure. And he sweats blood elsewhere in the word of God. And he also wants the cup to be taken from him. But he knows that should that occur, salvation for his apostles and the 70. And even his own mother and you and I and all of us would be impossible. So as always he submits himself to the Father's will, but not before he notices that Peter has fallen asleep. He can no longer take the pressure 
any longer and he just wants to get his head down as they say and rest and he says fine rest for the time being watch ye and pray 38 lest ye all of you enter into temptation why the spirit truly is ready but the flesh is weak the new nature and the old nature clashing time after time and like i say paul knew that all too well from romans chapter 7 on top of his mental agony and perhaps even witnessing and seeing future sins coming down the centuries his pain continues and he prays a second time and he prays a third time and then eventually judas and his cohorts are at hand and he says in 42 rise up let us go lo he that betrayeth me is at hand he's here right now and judas arrives with the temple guards who are heavily armed with swords and staves looking for a fight or in anticipation of some kind of conflict but of course the lord is peaceful and his apostles were peaceful except peter's outburst where he cuts the ear off the servants of the high priest and the lord straight away puts it back on his head and I said this last time, and I'll say it again, there is nowhere in the scripture where the apostles ever used any weapons to defend themselves against enemies of the cross or to attack enemies of the cross. Unlike scores of Muslims around the world today that are killing people and forcing people to submit to Allah. Allah sends his sons to die for him and kill as many people as they can, whereas Jehovah sent his son to die for the sins of the world. Two totally different religions. One serves the true God of the universe, the other serves Satan, of course. And the term from 45, Master, Master, from the mouth of Judas Iscariot, Lord, Lord, takes me back to Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. Read it please examine it please and mark it in your bibles it may be that you're not truly saved it might be that you are externally religious and people look up to you like they would have done to the pharisees and the scribes but unless you have been born again from within you are dead in your sins and he will say to you depart from me ye that work iniquity i never knew you and off you go into the lake of fire which lasts forever. 51 down to 52, a young man is mentioned who appears naked. Perhaps he was startled when Judas and the temple guards came to arrest the Lord and he gets up in a rush and as he departs, one of the young men tries to grab him, tries to detain him and that's why he runs off into the night naked. He could have been there, he could have seen it or perhaps he was one of the 70 who got caught up in a commotion Hence why his clothes have been ripped from him. I'm not saying he was naked in a literal sense, but he could have been partially clothed and gave the appearance of being naked. And if this man is John Mark, it makes it clear to me that he could quite possibly have been one of the 70 along with his uncle Barnabas. 53 down to 65, the interrogation of the Lord Jesus Christ takes place. And like I say, it's Late evening, early morning, by the time this is underway, something which was unprecedented in the history of Israel. You don't normally have trials in the dead of night, but 
the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite are in a rush to deal with him before the Passover. They want to kill him as quickly as possible. And they want to turn around and tell Pilate, yes, we've interrogated this male factor, we've interrogated this deceiver, and he's condemned himself. And yet the Lord is very careful what he said to them. Certain parts of the trial, so-called, he is silent. Other parts of the trial, so-called, he is responsive. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of these religious leaders was unable or unwilling to show them the need to be born again. And that goes back to what I said previously, how John the Baptist couldn't or wouldn't or wasn't able to win Herod to faith in the one true God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is soon to be in the presence of Herod as well. And he too was unable or unwilling, based on foreknowledge of course, to bring Herod to faith in him as well. And in the midst of all this pain and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, his closest friend and associate, a man who allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to live in his house, a man who allowed the Lord Jesus Christ to bless his children, has denied him, and yet, 66, he's beneath in the palace, and it's quite possible he could hear some of the commotion that was going on above him. But by 67, going down to 69, 70, 71, and 72, he has denied him three times, but not before he's cursing and swearing in 71, demonstrating that Peter, as a saved man, still had the problem of the old nature, something we can all affirm if we are honest with ourselves. But by 72, the cat is out of the bag, as they say, and he finally realises that the Lord's words of prophecy concerning Peter's denial of him have come to pass, and he weeps bitterly. He cries like a baby. And that weeping, that crying, was sincere, and it led to full restitution from the Lord Jesus Christ in John 21. Whereas Judas, on the other hand, had crossed the point of no return, and the remorse, the grief, the guilt, causes him to commit suicide. And the word of God tells us how Judas went to his place. And quite possibly the spirit behind Judas is going to be the spirit that leads the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. And like I said, I also believe that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ began in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam fell back in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord starts his atoning work in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweats blood in the Garden. His precious blood falls to the ground, picturing the beginning of his atoning work. And it says in 33, how heavy he was, how pressed down he was, how so amazed he was, how his soul was exceeding sorrowful unto death. He felt like he was at the point of dying. The pain must have been enormous. The pressure must have been immense. And that pictures the build-up to six hours on the cross. Not a stake, as the Jehovah's false witnesses teach, but a literal Roman wooden cross. So I will conclude Mark 14 on that point. And next up, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. He's been in their care all night. He probably hasn't slept a wink. He's hungry, he's thirsty, and he's tired. Verse 2. And Pilate asked him, 
Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. In modern English, you said it. 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. The Lord is finished with the chief priests. He's finished with apostate Israel. He's now in the presence of the true power of Israel. Pilate being the true authority in Israel, and yet Pilate is there, according to the Old Testament, because the Lord God of the Bible has allowed him to be there. The powers that be are ordained of God. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. Pilate was surprised, if not shocked, that the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't even engaging his critics. Because Pilate was a politician, Pilate was a Roman, and the Romans, to their credit, did allow fair trials for the most part anyway. And he wants to free the Lord. Pilate was no fool. Pilate was a career politician, and Pilate wanted the Lord to be set at liberty. But of course, he's very much up against it, and the Jews are going to play this conniving game with Pilate and Israel as a nation in general. But look at verse 6. Now at that feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. They call this a goodwill gesture, and here Pilate had it in his power and authority to release one prisoner, and it's going to come down to a murderer, a terrorist, known as Barabbas, which means the son of the father, rather interestingly, or the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Jehovah saves. Book of verse 7. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. They wanted a murderer to be set at liberty, a murderer, a terrorist, an awful character who no doubt was loaded down with other sins. They wanted him to be released instead of Jesus Christ. Can you understand it? Can you fathom it? I know I can't. Look at verse 9. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Don't you want the king of the Jews to be set at liberty? Why in the world would you want Barabbas to be set at liberty? Of course, he knew that the chief priests had delivered Jesus Christ to him through envy. But at the same time, he's slightly bewildered that they don't want the release of Jesus. Verse 10. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. And Pilate had his own secret police. Pilate would have known what was going on in Israel, as would of Herod as well. But he's now in a slight quandary. What does he do? Does he release the Lord and deal with the fallout from the religious elite? Or does he release Barabbas? 11. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. They're pulling the strings behind the scenes, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, and it shows how much power these men had. 12. And Pilate answered, and said again unto them, What will ye then that I should do unto him, whom ye call the king of the Jews? He's buying time, if you will. What do you want me to do with this man, who ye all call the king of the Jews? 13. And they cried out again, Crucify him. 13. A very ominous number in the world of a cult. 13. A very questionable number in the world of Satanism. And 13, a very dubious number when it comes to those that are outside of the kingdom of God. And they cried again, 
they shouted out, they declared publicly, crucify him. And this group of people are not Gentiles. This group of people are not Romans. This group of people are Jews. 14. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. What has this man done? I've been in Israel for X amount of years. I've seen people over those years come before me that had been guilty of this crime and that crime. And here's a man who I know is innocent through and through. What has he done? Why will you not allow me to release him? Pilate was no fool. And yet Pilate was part of the Lord's plan when it came to offering redemption to the world via the Lord Jesus Christ. 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Pilate did what all politicians do. He takes the easy option and on this occasion it resulted in scourging Jesus, whipping him with a metal chain until parts of his flesh fell off his back and then he offered him up to be crucified. The most painful method of death known to mankind and the Romans perfected it to perfection. 16. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they called together the whole band and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Now they are getting in on the action. Now the Roman soldiers are mocking him and blaspheming him. And no doubt Satan was behind them as well. But doesn't this demonstrate just how wicked mankind is? And doesn't this demonstrate just how wicked and depraved and sinful man can be when the Lord doesn't restrain them? And this is going to happen during the great tribulation when the church has been raptured. The Lord is going to pour out his fury and wrath. And man is going to be God in a lowercase g, for a limited period of time. Man is going to get what he's always wanted, his own way, his own kingdom, but without God on a throne. 19. And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowed their knees, worshipped him. You have to ask why, you have to wonder why. They felt such contempt for him. They couldn't care less about the Lord Jesus Christ. These were superstitious, pagan Romans, and yet they are sadistic, torturers and they are enjoying seeing this innocent man crowned in purple picturing his royalty and they are smoting him on the head and bowing their knees and worshipping him this is mockery with a capital M 20 and when they had mocked him they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him they've had their fun with him and now it's time to throw him to the wolves 21 and they compel one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. The Lord's tired, he's been up all night, he's been whipped to an inch of his life, and this man, Simon of Cyrene, has been forced to bear his cross. He's been forced to pick up his cross and assist the Lord as he walks the final yards to his death. And somebody once said, a man who went out of Jerusalem carrying his cross was never going back into the city he had a one-way ticket to death. And that was the Lord's choice when it came to redeeming mankind. There's no other way to redeem mankind apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 22. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not, 
further contempt, just a cold cup of water would have gone a long way for the Lord. But these people are enemies of the cross. These people are trying to prolong his agony. 24. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. Now it's time to start gambling for his clothing. They've mocked him, they've scourged him, they've spat upon him, and what clothing he had left, they're now gambling over. And I'll say this, when he hung on the cross for six hours, he was completely naked. But the word of God says how he despised the shame. And the word of God says how we are to bear his reproach. 25. And it was a third hour, and they crucified him. Nine o'clock in the morning. 26. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 27. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. He came to die for sinners, and now he's going to be placed between two thieves, who no doubt had committed many other sins. He was born for this purpose. From the moment he was born to the moment he died, the world was against him. The priests and the hierarchy were against him. His whole life has been leading up to this one event. His death at the age of 33 years old on a Roman cross. 28. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he certainly was. He preached for three and a half years. He taught. He led by example for three and a half years. He healed people for three and a half years. He forgave people for three and a half years. But now he's numbered with the transgressors. Verse 29. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest a temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Who were these people? Talk about treachery with a capital T. And these weren't religious people. 31. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Yes, they did, but please keep this in mind that the whole period of the Lord on the cross was for six hours. So from 9 a.m., to 3 p.m., one of the thieves has a change of heart. And just before 3 p.m., the believing thief calls on the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. He believes on the Lord Jesus Christ to save him. And the Lord Jesus Christ saves him to the uttermost. No works involved, no baptism, no church membership, just faith in Christ alone. The just shall live by faith. 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Maybe the darkness caused the repentant thief to reevaluate his mocking, his contempt, and his disbelief in the suffering Saviour. But these scribes, these chief priests, mocking, saying he saved others, and he did himself, he cannot save. He didn't come to save himself, he came to save us. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. They knew who he was, and they knew what he said about himself. And they go on to say, that we may see and believe. And yet, whatever he did, they would never have believed on him. He couldn't win either way. 34. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Aloi, Aloi, lama sabachini, which is, being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's now 3 p.m., it's pitch black, and the Lord is moments from death. And he says, Why have you forsaken me? Not why have you, my Father, forsaken me, but why have you, my God, forsaken me? At this point in time, the Lord Jesus Christ replaces an unsaved man or woman in hell. He takes their place in hell, if you will. He doesn't go to hell to be tormented by the devil, and he certainly was not the first man to be born again, but he takes the place of a sinner in hell. In other words, he takes your sins on himself, so when you die, if you believe on him, you go to heaven, not hell like you deserve. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we, you and I, which appropriate the atonement, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians chapter 5. So don't read this verse from Mark fifteen thirty-four and think that perhaps there's a split in the Godhead. No. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not my father, but my God, because he is a son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. 35. And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias, in reference to Elijah. Because from 34, Eloi, or Eloi, or Eli, Eli, it's Aramaic for Elijah. And they couldn't understand who he was calling for. Was it Elijah or Elohim? Not only were these people outside of the kingdom of God, hence why the Lord God spoke time after time to them in parables, but also the Lord Jesus Christ has reverted back to his childhood, his first language. And tests have been carried out over the years by scientists when it comes to their wanting to understand what people do in a moment of crisis. Some people cry out to their mothers and fathers in their native tongue, others if they are theist, cry out to their God. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the God-man, is crying out in Aramaic to his God in heaven. Why have you forsaken me? He knew, of course, what was occurring, and yet, at that moment of time, the Lord God, his Father, to be precise, couldn't look upon his beloved Son. His Father in heaven had to look away, and that must have broken the heart of the Son of God. But, of course, that's why he came to earth in the first place. So for the first time ever, sin has temporarily come between the triune God. 36. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. More mockery, of course. Give the man some water to drink. Why vinegar? Because his people, of course, were outside of his kingdom. This crowd of people are Satan's children, of course. But they're still mocking him. Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down from the cross. 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He's died. He's achieved his purpose in life. Another fallout is about to occur. And also from Matthew's Gospel, there was a great earthquake and many of the saints which had been buried arose and walked through Jerusalem. And also from 37, 
Jesus cries with a loud voice, his last righteous call to repentance, if you will. 38. And the veil of the temple is rent in twain from the top to the bottom, demonstrating the end of the old covenant, demonstrating the commencement of the new covenant. From now on, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, boy and girl, could come to God directly via the Lamb of God, of course. 39. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. He probably heard the Lord say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And elsewhere in Scripture, the centurion said, Truly he was a righteous man. Dot, dot, dot. Truly this man was a son of God. You can say two things. There's no contradiction in the word of God. But this man, this centurion, an unsaved pagan, has affirmed that Jesus Christ was a son of God. And according to tradition, take it or leave it, this centurion got saved as a result of witnessing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. 40. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseus and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him, and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseus, I believe is the wife of Cleopas. So Cleopas was one of the seventy, found in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, and his two sons, James the Less, and Joseus, an abbreviation for Joseph, were also of the Lord's seventy. And Salome, Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John, sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salome, therefore, is the Lord's aunt. And these women ministered unto him. They gave him money, because he was a travelling rabbi, and as such he was entitled to be supported with gifts. First Corinthians chapter 9 a travelling evangelist, someone who goes out full-time by faith, is also entitled to be supported by gifts. 42. And now when the evening was come, because it was a preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honourable counsellor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. That was a very brave and noble thing for Joseph to do. And this term craved is an interesting word. A woman craves for a type of food when she's hungry. A person craves for a type of drink when he's thirsty. But here, this man craved for the things of God. He craved for the body of Jesus. Do you crave for the Lord? Do you crave for scripture? Do you crave to win souls to the Lord? If you don't, something is wrong. 44. And Pilate marvelled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. Pilate can't believe he's already dead. Joseph has asked him for the body. So he calls the centurion in from 39 to find out how long he's been dead. 45. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. This was the least Pilate could do. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and yet elsewhere he washes his hands of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Pilate's wife, Claudia, 
said to him, have nothing to do with this just man. Had Pilate released Jesus, word would have got back to Rome that Pilate was weak, and Caesar might have replaced him, and Caesar, according to tradition, was the father of Claudia, Pilate's wife. To release Jesus could have resulted in a riot. It could have resulted in major civil disobedience. And that too would have got back to Caesar and Pilate would quite possibly have been forced to leave Jerusalem. And so Pilate, the ever conniving and skillful politician, takes the easiest of options and he crucifies an innocent man. 46. And they brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulchre which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulchre. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseus beheld where he was laid. With the apostles and the seventy failing him and yet Joseph of Arimathea almost coming out of nowhere to receive the body to bury him in his own tomb. Two ladies are found in 47 who were faithful right up until the end. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseus and James the less. Cleopas's wife and these two ladies beheld where he was laid. So 47 verses conclude Mark chapter 15 and as always and I keep saying this but it's true we've covered much material during today's study of this fascinating piece of scripture leading up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. What started back in verses 1 down to 6 of the chief priests holding a consultation, a meeting with the elders and scribes concerning the detention and illegal arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ has now made its way to Pilate. And Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but Pilate is a politician. But whatever he does concerning Jesus, he can't win. To release him would result in riots. To crucify him would see the death of an innocent man. So being a typical politician, he takes the easy route out and crucifies an innocent man. 7 to 15, the Jewish leaders orchestrate a campaign to have Barabbas released. And Barabbas was no friend to the religious elite, but they would much rather have Barabbas released than Jesus, because Jesus, in their minds anyway, was a threat to them, whereas Barabbas was a threat to the Romans. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests hated the Romans anyway, so it made no difference to them what Barabbas did. In fact, they probably welcomed Barabbas coming out and causing an even greater insurrection, causing an even greater sense of instability. He was a murderer. He killed people, but they didn't care. Barabbas over Jesus, as far as they were concerned, was always their desired goal, of course. But 12 down to 15, Pilate still wants to try and find a way to release Jesus without losing face in the eyes of his own people and also in the eyes of the religious elite. He can't do it. He can't please two masters. So being boxed in, he says, okay, scourge him and then crucify him. Picturing a very weak politician. But aren't all politicians weak? And yet saying that, you were told to pray for them. Because they are ordained by God. In fact, Jesus says to Pilate, you'd have no power if it hadn't been given to you from heaven. 16 down to 23, some of the Roman soldiers make sports of Jesus like the Philistines did with Samson. And this sadistic behaviour goes on for several verses until they realise that 
it's time to crucify him. And yet, incredibly, according to Luke's Gospel, Jesus prayed to the Father to forgive them, in reference to the Romans, for they know not what they do. Why would they? They were unsaved, superstitious Gentiles. But the Jewish leaders were far more accountable, and yet they too were ignorant as to what they were doing, because they were on the wrong side of history. 24 down to 28, he's crucified, and a superscription or a plaque is put over the cross saying, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And that was done by Pilate to ridicule the Jewish leaders, to infuriate them, because he knew that they had forced his hand when it came to the murder, and it was a murder, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet from 29 going down to 41 over a period of six hours, one thief on the cross turns to Jesus to be saved. And that's what we call a deathbed conversion. And yet his colleague was blaspheming him, according to Luke 24, and he dies in his sins and goes to hell forever. But praise be to God, the believing thief on the cross gets saved. And Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 16, being Abraham's bosom, of course. The righteous in one section and the unrighteous in the other section. But the mockery continues. Come down from the cross and we will believe on you. Of course, they were never going to believe on him. This is just sheer sarcasm. But the Lord, 34, speaks in Aramaic. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time ever, God the Father could not look upon God the Son. Why? Because God the Son had become a personification of sin. And his soul had become a sin offering to God. And yet during this period of time, 33, darkness covers the earth, resulting quite possibly in the salvation, not just of the believing thief on the cross, but the centurion in verse 39, and also the centurion would have heard those words from the Lord one more time. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says, truly this man was a son of God. Truly, he was a righteous man. And yet Jesus, naked on a Roman cross for six hours, was able to save two people to the uttermost, right under the nose of Satan, Pilate, Herod, and the apostate religious leaders. Only God could have done this. And this demonstrates the sovereignty of the Lord, how he is behind everything without exception. And that's why it says in Romans 8.28, how all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. And 40 down to 47, we find a small group of faithful women, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who love him, who remained faithful to him. And Joseph, to his credit, was able to go in boldly to Pilate and say, please give me the body of my Lord and Saviour. And Pilate was shocked by 44 that Jesus had died so soon. And he checks with the centurion in 45, who believed on the Lord, in verse 39, whether or not Jesus was already dead. And once Pilate realises that Jesus is dead, he gives a body to Joseph, who buries the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in his own tomb. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseus, beheld, they observed, where he was laid. The men scarpered, but the women were faithful right up 
until the end. So 47 verses conclude Mark chapter 15. Next up, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. This piece of scripture clearly initiates the new covenant. The Sabbath was given to the Jews under the old covenant, but now, from this day forth, all Bible-believing Jews and Gentiles are going to worship the Lord. They're going to break bread. They're going to thank him and praise him on the first day of the week, being Sunday, of course. And some people say, well, the Catholic Church moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. That is totally incorrect. The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament slash Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. And also of interest to me is how Salome is present with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, who was the wife of Cleopas. Mary, that is, not Salome. Salome, of course, was the Lord's aunt. And I think this, and I'll say this very briefly if I may, that although the Lord's half-brothers and sisters did not believe on him, you have to appreciate that they were always in the background, watching him, observing him. And who's to say they didn't all eventually come to faith in him? We know that James did, who wrote the epistle of James. And we know that Jude also came to faith in him. In fact, Jude was his half-brother who wrote the epistle of Jude. Verse 2. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre, at the rising of the sun, around dawn or pre-dawn, and this is still very early on a Sunday morning, and Matthew's account tells us how the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and how he rolled the stone away, not to allow the Lord Jesus Christ out of the tomb, but to allow the women to go in to the tomb, followed subsequently by the apostles. And he, the angel of the Lord, caused a great earthquake, and I'll say this also, that the angel of the Lord is deity. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was Jesus Christ, and we call that a Christophany. But it does appear that when the angel of the Lord appeared in the New Testament, he came in the person of the Holy Spirit, which pictures quite clearly to me the Holy Ghost's arrival on the earth to replace the Lord Jesus Christ's departure from the earth. And he, the Holy Ghost, known also as the Holy Spirit, of course, is the Comforter, Jesus Christ said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And he also told us how the Holy Spirit would be with us always. So Jesus departs in a physical form and the Holy Spirit arrives in a spiritual form. Verse 3. And they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? This was a huge stone. It would have taken probably three or four men to put it into place to seal the tomb being Joseph of Arimathea's, of course. And these women, Mark lists at least three, no doubt there were more, couldn't possibly have moved this stone. And on top of that, there was a Roman guard outside of the tomb. And Matthew tells us that when the angel of the Lord appeared, the keepers shook as dead men. They stood in the presence of deity and they shook and practically died, perhaps of a heart attack, or perhaps they just froze as dead men. When you come into the presence of deity, the chances are you will die. Moses got a glimpse of the Lord and survived. 
the Lord Jesus Christ gave his apostles a glimpse of his full glory, and they too survived. But the angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, rolls the stone away and sits upon the stone, picturing victory, of course. Verse 5. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were frighted. I think it's Luke that lists at least two angels. But here Mark is going to list just one angel, and this angel does the most talking. Not necessarily the angel of the Lord, but just another angel sent to proclaim the Lord's resurrection. And it says also, quite understandably, how they were affrighted. They were terrified, and yet, at the same time, no doubt, excited. Verse 6. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Be not afraid. Don't fear. Don't panic. You all seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified? He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. What a great affirmation of the Lord's total victory over death. He's conquered death to the uttermost. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message, how we are now firmly and securely and eternally in the new covenant. Verse 7. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. And there shall ye see him as he said unto you. Go your way and tell the disciples and Peter. He doesn't say go and tell Pope Peter. He doesn't even say go and tell the Queen of Heaven. He says go and tell his disciples and Peter. And this is fascinating to me because almost starting from the beginning of this chapter, going back to the last verses of the previous chapter, we discover how the women are in the leading seat. The women are in the driving seat. And the women were the first to see the risen Christ. Picturing the Lord's forgiveness, if you will, the Lord's removal, if you will, the Lord's pardon, if you will, of Eve's stigma. Because Eve fell, and due to Eve's fall, mankind, without exception, fell into sin, which is what original sin is. And here Mary Magdalene represents fallen woman in every possible way. And the angel says, go to Galilee. His ministry began in Galilee, and it's going to conclude in Galilee as well. Look at verse 8, please. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. It's quite natural, and yet the fear of man bringeth a snare. But here they are fearing God. They are fearing deity. Yes, this angel has spoken to them, and I'm not sure that this is the angel of the Lord, but it's quite possible that the angel of the Lord is still physically present. He's certainly one of the two angels which have been sent from heaven to proclaim the risen Christ. Verse 9. Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. From verses 9 going down to verse 20, some people have suggested that this should not be in Mark's gospel. And the argument has been put forward that this piece of scripture is not found in the so-called best manuscripts. But the best manuscripts, so-called, are Catholic, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And yet Irenaeus quotes it along with other 2nd and 3rd century church leaders. 
I personally believe it should be in the word of God. I don't believe the Lord would inspire his word and somehow allow ungodly people to come in and contaminate his word. If he inspires the word of God, and he does, he's going to preserve it to the uttermost. And from Revelation 22, the warning goes out that if you add or subtract any word from any part of the Bible, God is going to add the plagues to you, the plagues found in Revelation, of course, and on top of that, he will take you out of the kingdom of God. In other words, if you are saved and are adding or subtracting words from the scripture, you will lose your place in the millennial kingdom. That's how serious this is. And I also said from the beginning of the study how Mark chapter 1 mirrors John chapter 1 along with Genesis chapter 1. And I believe what we are reading here from verses 9 going down to 20 is a general recap of the entire gospel of Mark. But here it says in verse 9, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Why? Well, I've already told you, to remove the stigma, going back to Eve. Mary was a daughter of Eve. And when Eve fell, Adam was standing right next to her, so he too was punished as a result of listening to Satan and not listening to the Lord. And here Mark tells us how the Lord had cast out seven devils from Mary. Look at verse 10. And they went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. They were crying, they were grieving, the twelve of course, minus Judas, and the seventy. And it's so interesting that the Lord sent women to proclaim his resurrection. And women, when they are used in such a way in the scripture, underscores the apostasy of man. Meaning, the Lord will raise up women to do certain things for him, because men can't or won't. And so because the men were so weak, because they fled Because they forsook him, because Peter betrayed him, Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Cleopas' wife, and Salome, the Lord's aunt, have been commissioned with the great news of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before I move on to verse 11, I just want to further underscore the verses here from 9 going down to 20 in a sense of recapping everything that we have read from Mark. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read it, And I haven't got time to do it today. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2 and read the first three, four, five verses, you get a recap. So it's my belief, therefore, that Mark is simply repeating what Moses did back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. A recap of his gospel and no more than that. Verse 11. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believe not, they in reference to the eleven, and they in reference to the seventy. They couldn't believe that Mary had seen him, and they certainly could not believe that he had truly been raised from the dead. Why? Because they are in mourning, verse 10. They are grieving, verse 10. And perhaps their hearts are still hard. And perhaps they just cannot bring themselves to believe that Jesus Christ has been totally victorious. And this underscores the flawed nature of the apostles. They wanted to believe, but for reasons that we don't quite understand, their grief and their great sense of loss hindered them from truly believing the great news for Mary and the others. But take a look, please, at verse 12. 
After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. This would be Cleopas, the husband of Mary, found in verse 1, and Cleopas with a fellow disciple, another member of the 70, was walking on the road to Emmaus. But it says he, the Lord, appeared to them in another form, which I think pictures his glorified nature. But on top of that, I believe he is also appearing to them in another form as a sign of judgment. Why? Because they didn't believe the great news from Mary in verse 11, 13. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Now two people have gone back to the apostles and proclaimed how they too have seen the risen Christ and the eleven and most of the seventy excluding Cleopas and this other unnamed disciple are still in unbelief. Incredible. Verse 14. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. How many times would he have to tell them that he would go to the cross, be crucified, and after three days be raised from the dead? And yet he persisted with them, even though they were faithless, he was always faithful, which demonstrates that we too can and will be faithless, but he, the Lord Jesus Christ, will always be faithful. Verse 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. We are saved by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we have believed on him and in him, then we are baptized by total immersion. But if you don't believe on him, you are condemned. You are damned. Why? Because you have called him a liar in essence. You have rejected the resurrection and you have rejected the word of God's account and testimony of everything that Jesus Christ did for us and the world. Hence why you'll go to hell when you die if you don't believe on him. Verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing... It shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Casting out devils, Peter, John, Paul, and the rest of the eleven. Taking up serpents, Paul, found very clearly in the book of Acts. Drinking any deadly thing, not found explicitly anywhere in the New Testament. Although some people think that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are going to be able to drink contaminated water during the great tribulation and not die. And finally, and they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Peter laid his hands on the sick and they recovered. Paul laid his hands on the sick and they too recovered. So in my opinion, I would say verses 17 and 18 were given exclusively to the apostles. In other words, verses 17 and 18 are only applicable to the apostles, found very clearly in the book of Acts. But take a look, please, at verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. To sit on the right hand of God demonstrated completion. 
the atonement had been completed. The Great Commission had been given. Verses 15 going down to 16. Verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. The signs here are in reference to the signs found in 17 and 18. And the Lord went with them, the eleven, and no doubt the seventy, confirming the word with signs and wonders. He was confirming their word with signs and wonders. And the final word from Mark's Gospel, Amen. May it be. So that will conclude my unscripted verse-by-verse study throughout this great Gospel. And it started with Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome arriving at the sepulchre to anoint the body with spices. But they're shocked and surprised to discover that the stone has been rolled away to allow them to go in and see an empty tomb. Of course they're terrified, but one angel says, don't be afraid, he is risen, he is not here, go to Galilee and wait for him there. And they take word to the apostles who are in great distress and the apostles cannot believe what they have heard and due to their hardness of heart the lord condemns them in verse 14 but not before he appears to them verse 12 in another form at least two disciples on the road to emmaus and verses 15 down to 16 he commissions all of them without exception to go into the world and preach the gospel and that is still as irrelevant today as it was back then, in 30 AD. He that believeth and is baptized, verse 16, will be saved, but he that believeth not will be damned. Baptism cannot save you. You are saved by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith saves you, and your lack of faith will condemn you. And these signs, 17 and 18, are going to follow you, the 11, and Paul, Acts 9, and a few other disciples found in the book of Acts that believe in my name, and that go out into the world with my authority. 19 down to 20 pictures the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back to heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, but by Acts chapter 7, he's standing in anticipation for his return to earth. But the Jews kill Stephen and the Jews reject the Lord so he sits back down again and he's going to remain seated until the second advent he's going to remain seated until the rapture of the church and one last and final time linking up the signs and wonders from 17 and 18 are found in verse 20 in reference to the 11 and only the 11 excluding Paul of course who's going to come along in Acts chapter 9 And they, the eleven, went forth preaching everywhere. And the Lord was working with them and confirming the word, meaning their message, with signs and wonders, great miracles. And the last word, one more time, from the Gospel of Mark is Amen. Amen and Amen and Amen. So thank you for starting with me. Thank you for finishing with me. And I hope this has been a great blessing to you all. The Lord bless you all. And Maranatha.